Good afternoon, good evening, listeners of the Silmarillion Film Project. This is Trish Lambert and not Dave Kale. Um, our illustrious Dave, unfortunately, is having some internet issues. We're hoping he may join us a little bit later, but for now, I am standing in his stead doing the introduction. Um, we are at session 12 of season 2, and we're talking today about episode 8, uh, The Trial of Melkor and Other Things, and uh, of course, as always, uh, I am joined by the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson. Good morning, everybody. Excellent. So <clears throat> uh, we have, uh, this is, of course, you know, we, we always say that this is a big episode, you know, like we always feel like today is really exciting because it's always exciting. Um, but this is, in fact, a really important episode. This is, a, this is a, a, really the turning point of the season, right? We were talking about last time, in episode seven, you know, during the uh, the you know the the noontide of Valinor section, um, that uh, you know you can say that the 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 season pivots at episode six, right? When they when everybody gets to Valinor, and so that you could say that episode seven is really kind of the beginning of the of the second half of the season, and in a sense, that's true, the Valinorian half rather than the Beleriandic half, but. Um, but of course, this is the this is the 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 real kind of conflict in the middle of the season. This is really the dramatic turning point when Melkor is released, and it is after this that everything is going to begin to decline. And uh, uh, yeah, Nick Poazza was just saying the same thing. It's 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 the real conflict of the season, um, <clears throat> and in particular, I'm really excited to think about this because I think. <clears throat> I think the whole Melkor in Valinor thing could be really, really cool if we do it well. Um, I mean, it could be really hokey, but it could be really cool. And I think uh, I'm, I'm just really excited, sort of, for the for the for the for the potentials of this. I I really enjoyed when we were doing our outline for the season episode. I was uh, uh, really excited about some of the ideas that we had there, and I'm really interested to sort of move them forward here. So, um, so yeah, yeah, this is this is uh, this this is going to be a lot of fun to think about. And you guys have been awesome, um, huge, very voluminous discussions on these things on the discussion boards this past uh, this past week, uh, fortnight actually. It's been a full fortnight now since our last episode. Um, so, uh, so I r really appreciate your discussion, your ideas, uh, that they, uh, I, uh, agree with, as usual, I agree with many, though not all of them. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how much of that stuff we can, uh, we can integrate here in our discussion here this morning. So, um, very excited to get going on that now. Uh, but first, I, I, I want to make sure we do have some announcements. We want to make sure that everyone is on top of, of course, we've been doing our uh, fundraiser, which has been going wonderfully. 
Uh, people have been very generous uh, so far. Uh, we have raised uh, over $25,000 so far towards our $50,000 annual fund. So more than half of the funds that we need to keep Signum going for the whole year, we have already raised, which is fantastic. Um, and we still have uh, a little over a week left uh, in our fundraising campaign. And the big focus now is, as we move towards the end is to the big webathon at the end, um, which is our traditional end of campaign event. Uh, now, one thing that I want to make sure to announce because this is very important. Um, we had, <clears throat> I had originally announced. In fact, I believe at the, on the last episode I announced that the date of the final webathon was Sunday, the thirtieth of October. I, I've shifted the date. The webathon is going to be on the twenty ninth of October, Saturday, the twenty ninth, instead of. Sunday the 30th. Uh, and the reason for that is that we are so like chock full of fun programming that I couldn't fit it all into a Sunday afternoon. So um, I'm shifting it to Saturday uh, so we can uh, so we can take some more time with it. Um, and uh, it's going to be great. We're going to have uh, we're going to we're going to have a couple special lectures and discussions. Um, we're going to have uh, uh, I, I'm going to be doing a special uh, Silmarillion related interview actually where I'm going to be interviewed um, I have uh, there's um, uh, this uh, uh, really strikingly uh, uh, brilliant uh, and inquisitive middle schooler who wants to ask me questions about the Silmarillion so where I'm going to I'm going to talk Silmarillion uh, with uh, with like an 11 year old girl who is awesome uh, and has lots of questions about the Silmarillion. So we're we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have a uh, I'm gonna have a special special Q and A uh, children's Q and A on the Silmarillion. It's gonna be really fun. And of course, we're doing our special session um, on the Silm Film Frame. So we've been deliberately we and the the script folks have been deliberately. Uh, kicking the can on the frame question. You'll notice we haven't talked about that in several episodes because we decided we're going to have this special episode during the webathon, which I have prudently scheduled for the very end of the webathon. It's the last episode <laughs> in the webathon, just in case. And um, it's scheduled to start at 7 p.m. on uh, 7 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and so, yeah, so we're going to, we're, we're going to, the idea is to map out the frame for the entire season. So we'll, we'll, we'll think about the shape of the frame over the course of the season, which bits should go with which, uh, with which, you know, so both, both thinking of sort of the natural progression of the storyline within the frame, the Arwen storyline, uh, and then thinking about what, uh, what characters or what, uh, what moments in that frame in particular we need to pair with particular episodes and how we want to plan out and handle that whole thing. So, um, so yeah, we're, I, we're, we're, I'm very excited about that. Again, that starts at 7 p.m. Eastern time. Um, the, uh, it should be by the end of the day today. I, I hope the links will be up on the, uh, on the Signum website. Uh, so that everybody can register for that. So that's, again, Saturday, the 29th of October, the next Saturday, uh, at 7 p.m. is our film film 
discussion at at 6 p.m. is going to be my Silmarillion interview. Um, I'm doing before that at 4 p.m. I'm going to do a discussion on the new Netflix series Stranger Things. If you've uh, seen uh, this, if you've seen that show, uh, which I've just recently finished and I really, really loved it. Um, And I'm going to be actually joined for that. I'm going to be having a discussion uh, with another member of the Signum faculty, Brenton Dickinson, who's uh, who's really great. Uh, Trishkin uh, has, I know, has taken a class or two with with Brenton now, right? Oh yeah, yeah, he's great. I really that that's gonna be a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, he's uh, uh, he's a, uh, an excellent teacher and an and and inkling scholar. And uh, so he I, might... I, he, he's 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 kind of a he's similar to Corey if you, if you get my drift there. I mean, kind <laughs> of like you know, academic but also very hip sort of thing. You know, very of the twenty first century. Um, so and when I was taking his class, I was telling Corey, I said he definitely looks here. I said he reminds me of you in some ways, you know. I mean, not exactly the same, but of that same ilk. So it'll be fun to hear the two of them together. Yeah, yeah, that will be a lot of fun to do. So, um, anyway, yeah, Karita, I was also surprised to hear just there that I was hip. I didn't realize that. So that's kind of I know. fun. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's... but consider the source. <laughs> 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 Fair enough. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I I won't uh, I won't get too big ahead about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah, so I hope you guys. Marie, will probably go two to three hours. Yeah, they'll go over time probably. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, and and this the film film discussion will. Yeah, the, it's. Well, they called it. She's talking about film film discussion. Oh, yeah, definitely. probably, yeah. probably. Yeah. So again, that's why I scheduled that for the end, so that uh, you know we have time to work out the frame as we want to work out the frame, and it's going to be a really fun discussion. All of these sessions. Uh, I think that's true without exception. All of these sessions will be available. Uh, but you it, forgot the two to four slot. I did I mean, forget like, the two to four slot, which is going to be a, a special Lotro stream <laughs> that I'm going to be doing. Um, and I may be joined by special guests, uh, uh, which will right. be which will be really fun. And there um, will be many surprises. There will be surprises. I Nothing don't yeah, I am going to be surprised. I've been informed. I am going. What to be hint surprised. is the Tim Gunn of Middle Earth may show up? The who? The Tim Gunn. Do you know who Tim Gunn is? Uh, uh, I don't think oh, I do. He's a fashion dude. Mm. He's a you know real. What's oh American right. Run- okay. What's a runway? You know whatever yes. it's called. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yes. That's right. That's right. And That's other right. surprises that Corey doesn't even know about. Right. There, there will be. There will be. Adventure. Project Runway. That's it. Project Runway. Adventure. Fashion. That's, yeah. That's what I meant, Marie. Consider the source. Because hip people would know this. I, before, I can't even remember yeah. the name of this show. So, you yeah, know, I just like. It's, it's, <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot claim to be sufficiently. If, 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 if hipness, if a prerequisite for hipness is, uh, you know, knowing anything about fashion or. Frankly, current TV shows, then yeah, I, I don't. I'm, I'm afraid I, <laughs> I totally don't qualify. Um, That's right. Nick is right. He prefers to think that hip people do not know those. Well, things. see, I Nick. Yeah, you can. True. You can. We can choose to redefine hipness. I think that's, that's certainly that's, that's got to be fair, right? Yes. Um, yes. 
Anyway, yeah, so it's gonna be hey, it, it's gonna be great fun. There's gonna be trivia contests throughout the, throughout the day. We're gonna have you know lots of special giveaways and auctions and things. It's gonna be it's gonna be a it's gonna be a fun day. Um, Halcyon points out uh, in 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 my defense that uh, Tolkien himself uh, surely didn't try to be hip. Uh, this is true. Which this is, is true. Which is which is true. I think. Yeah. Uh, in fact. Uh, hip would be really in the lowest echelon of adjectives <laughs> I would apply to Tolkien uh, in his life. Um, I mean, there are. There, I'm not saying it's the last adjective I would apply to but him. But it would be very low. But it would be low, low on the list of adjectives that could be with justice and aptness applied uh, to J.R.R. Tolkien during his lifetime. So you're right. Hal. By the way, I, I did want to just acknowledge that we do have the puppies of Orme in the yes, background today. Yes, exactly. I apologize for Yeah, that. no, you can hear, you can you uh, can faintly hear the the, the calling of, uh, of, of, yes. of Huan in the pack. Uh, in the background. Right. There. Oh yeah, that's who on. Yeah, that high that high pitch. That's who on. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's always how I pictured who on sounding. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. Okay. Um. So let's talk about. Uh, oh, oh. I, before I was about to start talking about the trial, but actually, for we had a request. Uh, from Tony Mead by Twitter yesterday, which I think is totally appropriate, um, to uh, uh, start off by making a, a couple comments about the news this week of the Baron and Luthien book that's going to be released in the beginning of next year. Um, I talked about this a little bit in my Mythgard Academy class uh, on Wednesday night because it's really kind of specially relevant to the Mythgard Academy folk because we just did The Lost Road. And The Lost Road basically contains... The majority, there's a little bit of material later, later on, but, um, the, the published Silmarillion, you know, it's one of the things that's kind of interesting, um, when you, uh, when you read the history of Middle Earth series is sort of the different moments at which you come across like the finalized material of Tolkien of, of the Silmarillion, right? I mean, it's, it's, it, the, the published Silmarillion is a really interesting kind of compilation when you look over the, when you, when you're reading through the history of Middle Earth and seeing the different stages of Tolkien's, uh, of Tolkien's rewriting and revisions. And, you know, one way to, uh, to kind of think about Tolkien's rewriting and revision process is it's it's almost it's like the tide coming in except not nearly as inexorable as the tide coming in right so you've got so he'll write something like <laughs> like a wave cresting and going up ashore and coming back right and then he'll start again and and rewrite and and it's like the wave will go in and maybe it maybe it goes a little bit further before it stops and maybe it doesn't quite reach that same place but then it'll sort of recede again and then the next wave comes and he almost always goes back and starts at the beginning again rather than picking up where he ended uh, where he ended up but for this reason you have things like there are some uh, versions of the story which were composed quite late. I mean, like the material that Christopher Tolkien is drawing on for the uh, like Thingol and the Silmaril material, for instance, is 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 relatively late. Where the the published Silmarillion version of the Fall of Gondolin 
is from stuff Tolkien wrote in 1930. Uh, you know, in, in like really this, what, what, what I guess I would call the second version of the Silmarillion. So it's like the, you know, the second wave, the first wave is the Book of Lost Tales. You know, the second wave is the 1930 Quenta, uh, the Quenta Noldorinwa. And, uh, and, and when he gets to the fall of Gondolin there, that's the last time he ever wrote the story of the fall of Gondolin. There do not exist any later versions of the story. He, he of course, started writing that much longer tour story um, that's in uh, Unfinished Tales. But, but of course, it got nowhere near the actual fall of Gondolin. Um, he barely even gets to the discovery of Gondolin in that version of the story. So... Um, so, you know, so again, reading through the history of Middle-earth, you get to the Quentin Olderinwa and you get to the Gondolin passages and you're like, hey, look at this. I'm reading word for word, largely word for word passages that are exactly the published. This is where the published Silmarillion came from in this bit. Well, The Lost Road, which is volume five. Um, and contains the, the 1937 Quenta Silmarillion, which is a really, really important moment in the history of the Silmarillion development, because that's not only the state of the Silmarillion before he turned to the Lord of the Rings. I mean, like where he stops writing the Quenta Silmarillion is like basically the moment where he picks up and starts writing the Fellowship of the Ring. So it's it's it's. Um, it's really cool to study the 1930 Quenta Silmarillion because that's that is the Silmarillion Tolkien had in his head as he's writing the Lord of the Rings. So it's it's really cool to think about it in that way. But the other thing, which is I think even cooler, is that that's the the final version of the Silmarillion that he ever finished preparing for publication. Um, I mean, he wasn't quite done with it, but <clears throat> he came closer than he's ever going to get again uh, of actually preparing texts to send off. He did, in fact, send them off to the publisher. Um, and so that's really, really cool to think of this as like, this is, this is the, the, this is this, you know, when Tolkien talks in his letters and whatnot about wanting to get the Silmarillion published, this is the Silmar, this is what he meant. This, these texts are what he thought of when he said the Silmarillion and I want to get the Silmarillion published. Um, so anyway, so that stuff is really cool, but that stuff that's where we get the Baron and Luthien stuff, basically. Um, the the There are some references later on, but that stuff in 1937 is essentially the core Baron and Luthien material that uh, uh, that Christopher drew the published Silmarillion text from. Um, in fact, to such an extent that uh, all he does is he doesn't even really give the full text of of the Baron and Luthien story in the Lost Road. Um, he just kind of goes through and says, so it's basically the published Silmarillion text, except for here, 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 and here. And he gives this list of like, here are the passages that are different um, from the published text um, so that we can know what he was thinking in 1937 and the changes that came in later on. Um, so all of this to preface the fact that now Christopher's going to release this new book that's going to, that's just called Baron and Luthien, you know, the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, and it's, you know, we don't know all that much about it. Um, in the press release I've seen, um, it, you know, there, 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 to me, the most revealing, um, point, um, of, um, the press release about the new Baron and Luthien book is that it's going to be lavishly illustrated by Alan Lee, just like the children of Hurin was when that came out in 2007. And that's very suggestive to me because it, it shows it, 
in my mind, it more or less proves, this is not intended to be another scholarly text. So this is not like, you know, volume 13 of the history of Middle-earth, this time all about Baron and Luthien, like the full text of all the Baron and Luthien texts. It's clearly not going to be a scholarly text. It's designed for popular consumption. Um, a place to a place to have the full, you know, for, for people to get the fullest versions of the Baron and Luthien story. So, sort of a book upon which a movie could be based. You know, it could be. It could be. Um, it just dawned on me that by taking it out of the Silmarillion, now you've changed the conversation to be, you know, now this book could be. Well, you know, The Children something. of Hurin, yeah, already works that way. And the, well, that's Children of Hurin. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, Baron and Luthien. Baron way and more, Luthien, yeah. Way more sellable. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, because and those are the those, you know, of all of the I mean, those are only two of, you know, what are what are called the great tales, you know, the 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 right. the, the, the biggest stories of Tolkien's world. But of the great tales, um, you know, there's there's really there's really three or four, really. Um, Turin Turambar, Baron and Luthien, um, the fall of Gondolin and uh, Arendel, you know, the voyages of Arendel. Of those, the fourth one was never told, ever. Like, Tolkien never wrote <laughs> the story of Arendel. I mean, I, I, you know, the, the, there's stuff on Arendel in the published Silmarillion. Um, yeah. But it's not, I mean, he always Sketchy. hinted the at the idea that, like, the, I mean, in the Book of Lost Tales, the, 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 the sketch that he made, like, the outline that he drew for what he wanted to do with the story of Arendel was, like, as long as the entire rest of the Book of Lost Tales put together. Um, and he never came anywhere oh. close to actually writing that out. But anyway, okay. So, so Arendel, he never even wrote the story of Arendel ever. Um, the story of the fall of Gondolin, he only wrote once and he started to write it really fully. I mean, like if he had finished that unfinished tales thing, that would have been awesome. Um, and yeah. I, 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 I've come more and more strongly to agree with the, with the kind of, sh- startling statement that Christopher Tolkien makes in his introduction to that story in Unfinished Tales. It says that, you know, the, 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 the dropping of this story by Tolkien when he was working on it is one of the, one of the saddest moments in the history of story incompletion. And I'm, I was like, well, that's a pretty big claim, but I'm like, actually, yeah, I, I kind of agree. Like it's, it is on my very short list of stories. I really, really, really want the end to. Um, and I would have loved to see what he had done with the fall of Gondolin um, had he continued in the mode in which he began it in the unfinished tale story. Um, but, so anyway, uh, but so then we're left with Baron and Luthien and Turin Turambar, and those are the two that are finished, mostly, sort of. Um, I say sort of as regards Baron and Luthien. The ending is still kind of, he's still, he was still sort of fiddling with things, um, and the ending is not nearly as full and quite as satisfying. But anyway, um, he, he, he gets there. So yeah, those are the two like extractable, expandable novels kind of thing. Um, so uh, anyway, that's that's uh, yeah. But I have to admit, having said this though, having said that, clearly the Baron and Luthien volume is designed to enable not like scholars to have fuller information about the Baron and Luthien story, but to en- enable you know just. Tolkien readers to be able to dig more into, you know, just, just to, to draw, to draw more, um, popular readers into the, into the Baron and Luthien story. 
that seems clearly to be the the object, but I don't know exactly how it's going to be managed. Um, we're told they're going to be, ver- you know, like passages from different versions of the story. Um, and of course, the, there's the one thing that we have with the Baron and Luthien, of course, we have the full poetic version. Um, now, there's the poetic version. When Tolkien did the Children of Hurin uh, uh, volume, he had the same thing, right? I mean, there's an epic poem version of the story of Turin Turambar as well. Um, and he had to choose, like, am I going to integrate any of that stuff or am I going to include any of the of the poetic treatment of Turin Turambar or am I just going to... Am I just going to stick to the prose? And Christopher, of course, just chose to stick to the prose. But that was an easier choice to make with the Children of Hurin because he didn't get as far. I mean, the 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 alliterative lay of the Children of Hurin only gets up to Nargothrond, and that's it. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty good, and it, it goes, it, you know, it, it does quite a lot. And we get, for instance, like the death of Beleg, which is really really powerful in the poetic version, um, and you know, Turin's childhood sorrow and. Uh, it's it's all very powerful, but um, but it but it but it's like less than half the story, right? So, um, and the prose version is much is 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 not, obviously not only longer, but but much more full. So that that seemed kind of a no brainer. That is the project that Christopher had in front of him when he did the Children of Hurin was a much easier and sort of more obvious kind of thing to do. The fuller the fullest version of the Turin Turambar story that was ever told is the one that's published in Unfinished Tales. But when Christopher Tolkien published it in Unfinished Tales, he wasn't publishing it as a novelization. He wanted to kind of keep it shorter so he could squeeze more into Unfinished Tales. And so <clears throat> if you know the Unfinished Tales version, what, you, what you've what you seen is that he skips big bits, right? Because there are many bits that are the same as the published Silmarillion. So, you know, he'll be like, okay, so he breaks off the story in, in, the, in Unfinished Tales and is like, okay, so that it's it just falls it's exactly the same as the published version until so we, we rejoin the story later on when it starts getting different again right in other words it's not it's just not a full text you have to either have the published Silmarillion like sitting right next to you and go back and forth <clears throat> or you just have to know it well enough that you can just kind of take it as read and and and, and move on so the children of Hurin, the 2007 children of Hurin was the first time that the whole story was put together contiguously so that everybody could just immerse themselves in the fullest, longest, uh, uh, best version of the Turin Turambar story from one end to the next. Um, and and so again, that was very intuitive in its way, I thought, you know, that worked really well and is, it was a really obvious thing to do. And that was really cool. Um but uh, with Baron and Luthien, it's le- much to me what much was obvious what they're going to be doing, um, you know, th- because you know, what they what he what Christopher is going to be doing, um, because here what the I mean, there isn't a question of like the fullest, longest version, because the longer version of, of the Turin Turambar story was also written in the unfinished that unfinished tales, that like post Lord of the Rings um, time when he finished writing the Lord of the Rings and before it was published and he started going back and doing other stuff like starting to write and not finishing the fall of Gondolin story. Um, that's when he wrote the Turin Turambar thing. So he came back and revisited that. Well, Tolkien never came back and did a full revisiting of the Baron and Luthien story later on. So we don't have that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, uh, anyway, it, it's, it's so like, what's it going to be? You know, he, Tolkien did 
se- uh, several versions of the story, but they, they tend to be redundant. Like when he was writing the 1937 Quintus Silmarillion, the problem he kept having was a very common problem for him. And that was he would... Um, he sat down to write the story of Baron and Luthien and got totally carried away. And it was much longer and much more detailed, but he didn't get very far. He only got as far as like Baron's Oath, basically. And then he stopped. He's like, no, 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 no. This is way too long. This just does not fit within the frame of the Quintus Omerillion I'm trying to write. So I, I have to start again. So he goes back and starts again writing a shorter version, a more condensed version of it. And even that's too long. And he has to stop again because it's still too long. It's much shorter than the other one, but it's still too long. So he starts again and he goes back. And then eventually what he comes out with is essentially something which is, you know, I don't know, like 80 percent the published Silmarillion version of the story of Baron and Luthien. And then he added some bits later on. So the total texts that we have of Baron and Luthien are like several versions of varying lengths of the opening, right? Uh, from from that time. The published Silmarillion version, some later revisions, and the Lay of Lathian. I don't know. Okay, so it's not like, unlike with the Children of Hurin, where there was this sort of central text that you could use as the base to kind of put together. Um, we don't have that with Baron and Luthien. So, I, you know, it, and, and so I don't really know. I mean, and especially I, there were suggestions. I think there were references to the fact that some of the poetry was going to be included. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, and I'm, I'm not, I'm myself not really confident that we're going to see new brand new material here, or at least not much brand new material. Um, that would be awesome if we did. That would be, of course, the dream uh, to get an actual fuller version of the story of Baron and Luthien than we've ever had. But I just I don't think it much exists. Uh, so I mean, maybe maybe it does. And I don't know about it. And that would be awesome. Um, but I'm not real confident about that. So yeah, I, I'm, I have to admit I'm, 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 I'm excited about it, but I'm, I'm just mostly curious, like what on earth is he going to try to do and how exactly is he going to package this for, um, uh, you know, for like, uh, you know, mainstream audiences. But anyway, that's my discussion of Baron. Like I, I perhaps got it too long here into the history of the story of Baron and Luthien, but, um, there's your background. If you want a little background on uh, sort of what lies behind uh, this and what to expect coming up. So anyway, so Tony, I hope that's a, that's a sufficient answer to your, to your question. Um, we'll see. If he says no, if Tony says no, that wasn't sufficient. That's right. <laughs> I'm not sure we're going to have to do something to the boy. I don't know. That's true. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you what's, I don't have any insight into what's actually in it. I don't have any, any backs, you know, backstage information here. So, uh, that's all, that's all I got. Uh, that's all I can do. All right. Let's, uh, let's get, yeah, let's get, uh, let's get on to the, to, to, to the trial now. All right. So, the trial of Melkor. Uh, wait, wait, I do have one thing. I just okay, have to say yeah. one thing. Okay. All right. okay. Um, I, I, I have to confess that when I saw the announcement, my very first reaction was, gosh, will it be out in time for us to do the season on Baron and Luthien? This is how conditioned I have become to the film film project. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, no worries. 
it's yeah, it's it's gonna come out next year, so we'll have it like oh, plenty of time. Two yeah, years yeah, in okay. advance. Yeah, yeah. But we'll, it was just so funny that was my very first reaction, as opposed to any other Tolkien type reaction. It would right. be like, oh, make sure it's out in time for us to be able to do that season. Yeah, <laughs> but it's true, anyway. you know. If we if we, uh, um, it would be awful to have like new oh stuff like that revealed after we'd already done a whole after, season. Oh God, yeah. really. Kidding. All right. Anyway, what a headache. As you were, Professor. Okay. All right. Trial of Melkor. So, um, uh, uh, Marie, I loved your idea on the discussion boards about starting with the first, with like a flashback to the condemnation of Melkor, because of course, as soon as you were mentioning that, I was realizing we didn't really do that, and I think I actually, I actually think that that would be awesome, really. So, because okay, because so remember the end of the episode last time we end with him being being taken i think it would be great if we don't really do the trial episode at all the, the trial at all like his condemnation at all we just have him being dragged off in chains at the end of the season um you know and that's and that's uh and that's and you guys will remind me exactly where uh, i'm I, i'm i'm forgetting exactly where the script outline ended uh at the end of that episode but um but you know, a courtroom drama at the end of the climactic battle episode would seem a little anticlimactic, anyway. Um, so anyway, I, I kind of would like the idea if this is if this flashback is the first time that his initial trial is ever uh, is ever depicted by us, because um, it does seem like a really good you know. So uh, you know, we have a you know we have a little like uh, caption on the screen. You know, uh, three ages ago or <laughs> three ages earlier. Um, uh, and uh, so. So, yeah. So so we don't so so we don't depict his trial before. So we start off with his first trial. And and I'm thinking to me, the most important thing has got to be the difference between the depiction of Melkor in the first trial and the second trial. And, and that's why I really loved this idea, not only because it enables us to kind of go back and to fill a gap, um, because with the way that we jump from the battle scene, you know, from the, the battle episode at the end of, of season one to the elf perspective in the beginning of season two. And so we, you know, we've kind of skipped the sort of Valinorian denouement of season one. Right. Um, so that's cool. So, so we, I think we, we do the sentencing at the beginning, and when Melkor is brought before the Valar for his sentencing and his 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 you know imprisonment for three ages, he's got to be like, not quite like you know ranting and raving and stuff, um, but he is like haughty and defiant and angry and, um, you know he. But, the the culmination of the pride that we have seen and he is not humbled um and he is uh you know he's 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 angry and he's indignant um and he should be completely different when he comes out for his trial um for his uh, his his parole hearing here um here's the big um uh <laughs> sorry sorry just laughing at something mark ingram said uh mark ingram said does that mean we're going to be really sad after the of Balerion and its realms novel comes out after the initial excitement yeah yeah it's true it's true mark that's going to be that's going to be tough to handle um 
Yeah. Anyway, so yeah. And Chris, you're, you're right. So why do you condemn me for claiming what is my right should exactly that's 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 precisely the kind of attitude that I think that we should show him having at his initial sentencing. Um, here's here's the big picture. Here's my big picture thought about um, about how we want to handle Melkor, not only in this episode, but in but in the episodes to come. Um, remember in this in the published Silmarillion. The experience that the Valar are described as having, not in the trial itself, um, but afterwards, as things start to go downhill, right? As the Noldor in particular are going into sort of moral decline, um, the peace of Valinor is being, is not yet broken, but things are, things are, things are going south and nobody can kind of put their finger on it and nobody can sort of, you know, this sort of general sense of people looking around and saying something is slipping and nobody understands why, right? Um, nobody really knows where this is coming from. Um, there's just this sort of sense that not all is right. Um, I think it would be awesome if we could basically replicate that feeling in our viewers. Um, we talked about this in the outline episode, and I'm not saying we necessarily attempt to deceive our viewers. That might be a little bit strong, but we certainly permit our viewers to share the experience of the Valar as depicted in the published Silmarillion. That is that they believe Melkor. Um, so, I think it's super important that we don't tip our hand. I want to depict Melkor as completely positive. I want to depict him as reformed. Um, I don't want to, not only, not only do I not want to give the viewers glimpses of him scheming behind the scenes, right? Of him like, you know, having any sort of like, you know, goatee stroking moments where he's in the background saying, how shall I, how shall I, uh, 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 you know, pursue my insidious plot to wreck Valinor? Not only do I not want that, I don't even want to show him having like doing dubious things that other people think is fine. Right. Um, that is to say, I don't want to show him, um, being like, you know, in this overtly sort of tempter stance, uh, trying to corrupt the Noldor in ways that is is going to be clear to the viewers that he's doing something wrong, even if the Noldor themselves are unaware of it. Um, I think the way we want to depict Melkor in the next at least three episodes, eight, nine, and ten. Remember, so so remember the little little arc we have going on here in this part of the season. Episode ten is going to end with the with the drawing of the sword on Fingolfin and the banishment of Feanor. Right, that's going to end. Therefore, the and through that, the exposure of Melkor's influence and Melkor's flight eventually. Um, so, uh. So, okay. Okay. So, so we're going to, what I would like for these three episodes, eight, nine, and 10, the trial, uh, the making of the Silmarils and the unrest of the Noldor, and then the Kinstrife episode, uh, in episode 10, um, for, for all three of these episodes, through all three of these episodes, I want Melkor to be depicted as totally positive, right? Like I, I want it to be possible if a, for a viewer to believe 
that he's really reformed. Um, it will turn out that he has not, and there will be some evidence perhaps that he hasn't. Um, but, uh, but I think that he absolutely should look bad. Now, uh, <laughs> I don't know who Frosty of Forakel is, but uh, 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 Frosty of the North here uh, says, but where's the conflict if Melkor is good? Are we playing Feanor's potential villain for a couple episodes? Uh, bait and switch? Not exactly, Frosty. I think where the conflict comes is almost... Um, Almost, and uh, 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 almost, almost in mystery. Really, I, there should be. It should be like a mystery in some ways. Um, things will be starting to go bad. There will be red flags all over the place. Um, there will be things that he says and conversations that he's in that could be taken both ways. Right. Um, is he genuinely well-intentioned or is he not genuinely well-intentioned? Right. Um, but that's, he doesn't have Do to we... be the, the, like a villain in order to have that kind of conflict. Do we cut, do any cutaways to Myron during this period at all? I think we're going to have to, I mean, we have to move along the Myron and, and, uh, uh, Gothmog and, uh, you know, the orc project plot. Um, I mean, because that could also, I don't know, you know, could add to the mystery in the sense of, you know, Myron's trying to figure out if he's losing milk, you know, have we lost him? Right. Has he gone right. over? You know, I mean. <laughs> well, and, you know, what extent, I mean, of course, that raises an interesting general question. Is does, is Myron able to have any you know, any in, information at all from Valinor? Right. Right. You know, do, right. do right. Myron and Gothmog get any get any word obviously if we would you know show some way of melkor sending word to them then uh you know that gives away the game which we wouldn't want to do um but uh but yeah i i think yet marie says no i would vote no too i'm not sure i can't really think of a mechanism i mean remember valinor has been made a fortress right so they can't just so basically in order for myron to get any intelligence from valinor he would there'd have to be somebody on the inside right there'd have to be like one of the Maiar that's fallen that nobody knows has fallen uh and is kind of sneaking back and forth and that's theor that's theoretically possible um so I don't think that that really becomes an issue. I, I, I do suspect, by the way, that when Melkor is on the lam, he could get potentially he could get word to um, to Myron and, and Gothmog then maybe. Um, but uh, but I, th I think I, I think not before. So um, now it would be interesting, Trish, to do some kind of parallel development. Right. Um, that is. As we're depicting Melkor, the good guy, right, or the apparently good guy over in Valinor, um, we can be depicting Myron going in the, you know, going in the opposite direction. I mean, we talked right, about, right. you know, season two is this really important stage of, you know, season one, thinking of the story, you know, the, the, the character arc of Myron, right? Myron in season one is you know, choosing to align himself with Melkor instead of with the rest of the Valar. 
Um, but he that doesn't mean, you know, as we've talked about, that doesn't mean he's actively evil uh, at the end of season one, um, just that he's aligned himself uh, with Melkor um, and accepted some of his like general principles. Um, but when we get in season two, of course, we get this drama of him actually coming to do abominable things himself. Um, well, plus, you know, actually... I mean, think of it from Myra's point of view. He's not going to get any word from Melkor, which I do agree with. He assumes either that Melkor is gone, period. You know, he's in chains and that's forever. Um, or that he's, re, you know, reformed one way or the other. Either way, it seems to me that Myron's thought process would be, well, then it's up to me to continue on with the cause. And, I, you know, so his initial, and I don't know if, if we've gotten this far with him, but his initial, you know, reason to take the mantle of boss would be, you know, our main guy is like out of the game and we don't know if he's ever coming back. So I need to continue on. And then he gets a taste for it. Right. Then he kind of gets a taste for being the boss, which could be real interesting, you know, and I think would continue his fall even further. Um, When Melkor comes back, you know, of course, then he gets into line, but, but it also, that taste never quite leaves, you know, he's like, Mm -hmm. he's Mm -hmm. had the, He's had the scepter in his hand, and he's like, so that could be an interesting character development thing. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. I, I, and I, I think, I mean, I, I really think that Sauron's storyline, if we do it well, Sauron's storyline is going to be one of the most interesting, which is fascinating, right? Because Sauron in The Lord of the Rings is not exactly a dynamic character. It's kind of two-dimensional. Yeah, well, or, I mean, he's you know, he's a great not, villain, right? I mean, he's a great. I mean, yeah, he's, that's what I mean. But he exists in in the Lord of the Rings as just like an archetype, right? A, a yeah, exactly. The sort of distant exactly. archetype of evil, um, right? And you know, this like threat of 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 the shadow and everything. I mean, even like the the way that he's referred to as you know like as the shadow, or you know, like the shadow is associated with him. You know, he's like he he's not he's not like a guy. He's he's he is evil itself. And that's really effective in the frame of the Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, but it is really neat to think about giving Sauron this trajectory, which is, I mean, if you think about it, he's going to be our longest running character. That's true. I mean, that's true. Of, of all. I mean, one consistent character in the whole thing. And they... Yeah. I mean, he's we're, we're developing his character consistently throughout the the Silmarillion, you know, the, the first age period. Um, we are... Uh, um, where he is, of course, going to be a major character in the Numenorean section. Obviously, you know he's going to be a central character there, and then, of course, throughout, you know, uh, all the way through to his downfall at the end. So, yeah, I mean, the Silmarillion film project is going to start with like the the conversion of Myron in season one and end with the downfall of Sauron in in season twenty four or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, in a lot of ways, you could say he's going to be really at the heart of this entire adaptation, which is really kind of neat, actually, but. Yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way before. That's true. Mm-hmm. So actually giving him this, I mean, I really is kind of cool that we flesh out his story. So then when, we, you know, when when you do see him in Middle Earth in the Third Age, there's a much deeper, more textured character there. Yeah. You know, you know why he is the way he is today or, you you know, you get it because of the story, you know, trajectory he's been on over these millennia. I think it's just really cool. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and yeah, Chris Graham points out by the time of the Lord of the Rings, he's already fallen beyond saving. So there's no dynamic quality to his character. Agreed, Chris. And I think it's one of the things that we show that we need to show in Melkor as well. Right. You know, when there comes a point when he basically Tolkien's main villains do get to the point where they become flat. But that's on purpose. Right. Because they have they have emptied themselves. They have sold themselves out. Um, they have, you know, in like in Melkor's case, they have, he, Melkor has like distributed his own, he's lessened himself in order to, you know, it, the, remember in my mind anyway, the, 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 the model for all Tolkien villains is Ungoliant, right? Who in her uttermost famine at last devours herself. All Tolkien villains ultimately devour themselves. Um, that's what evil is. That's what evil does in Tolkien. Um, with Ungoliant, it just happens more explicitly. But Melkor does it. Sauron does it. They all do it. Gollum does it. The Ring does it. They all do it. Um, so, so yes, it's true, uh, Chris. By the time we get to the end, to the Lord of the Rings, Sauron is a shell of himself. Right. It's all evil characters become shells of themselves, just like Saruman in Bag End is a shell of himself. Right. Is a is a is a is a, you know, a small, mean, pitiable thing. Um, I guess it's I guess it's what always happens uh, to villains. But Sauron is going to have a, a really long road there uh in our in our telling anyway sorry okay so yeah so so i think we do we we can go back and do uh bits of the myron and uh uh Gwethel and uh, uh gothmog plot um but no i i don't i think the only relationship that it would have with the melkor in valinor story is is in parallel i think it, it could be cool right and con- contrast yeah yeah yeah, yeah. To, to sort of showing them, you know, so that again, uh, particularly gullible viewers who actually buy the fact that Melkor, I mean, if, if we succeed in convincing anybody that Melkor really has re- changed um, and really is on, you know, back on the straight and narrow, um, we may convince them that, you know, Sauron is basically going to be taking over. Like, you know, so like we've lost Melkor as our chief villain. And, and so here comes Sauron as, as taking over as the chief villain. Um, uh, I'm not saying that, we're actually going to, as I said, those would be particularly gullible viewers. Um, but, uh, but, but again, I, I, I would want that opportunity, uh, for very gullible people to get sucked in, but that's not the point. The point is not to deceive anyone, nor is it to actually make Melkor into a good guy. Um, uh, I, Lincoln, you were asking uh, about this, about sort of the conflict. How can we make Melkor appear to be a good guy when it's been made very clear, especially by Elrond in the frame of season one, uh, that he's a bad guy? It's not really a problem, I, I don't think. I mean, like, we know that Melkor is a bad guy. He's been established as a bad guy. That's the whole point. The whole point is that here's the bad guy and he... Remember the plant and, 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 and the idea, and this is where, Marie, I love the idea of the sentencing at the very beginning, because the explicit purpose, when he's condemned, I want the condemnation of him. I mean, it seems that the condemnation of him should be not punitive, um, but rehabilitative, right? I mean, they should, they, they, they should not be giving, they're, they're imprisoning him, not just because they want to get rid of him or because they want to punish him. They're imp- because they want to give him time for reflection, right? You have left the path. You know, you need to reconsider 
that, you know, think about your, you know, your being and your purpose and what Iluvatar, you know, has made you for and, and allowed you to come here for. There is, there is good that you could still achieve if you would, you know, if you would join with us and work with us in harmony instead of working against us, there is much good that you could do to, uh, you know, to, to, to correct the evils that you have brought into this world and to, and to, to move forward, you know, the great music of Iluvatar, right? So, I mean, that's, that's totally, I think that's Manway's attitude at the sentencing, right? And so the, the, the whole point of the three ages of confinement is we're going to give you some time to think this over, right? Um, take some time to commune here, right? And, uh, and, and we'll see if you think better of your plans, uh, uh, at the end of it. Um, Roy says there isn't a lot of hope for him, but not no hope, uh, quoting Gandalf uh, about Gollum. Yeah, exactly. But I don't think even that should be man. I think Manway should have hope. Um, uh, I mean, we saw how resistant in season one we we were emphasizing how resistant Manway was to just condemning him, right? To to believing even that he had turned. Um, so he, uh, um, uh, yeah. So so he he. I think Manway uh, believes strongly that Melkor can um, turn back, that he can amend. Um, so <laughs> remember who you are, says Brian Federini. Exactly. Remember who you are. That's 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 exactly the um, that's exactly the idea. So okay. So we set that up in the in the sen- in the sentencing. So when we get to the trial, it should look like everything has gone according to plan. And Manway, th- this is why I think, you know, because one of the, there are two big questions that come out of the trial, right? One question is, how do we make Manway get suckered by Melkor and not look like a git, right? I mean, Manway is supposed to be the wise ruler, Um how do we how do we combine those two things? How do we have the wise ruler who's a fool, right? Who gets suckered by 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 Melkor without Manway looking dumb? Um, and I think that it's it's very possible to do that again if we show his expectations at the beginning. Things have worked out exactly as he hoped they would. Um, and by the way, I actually think we should have a conversation maybe a private conversation between Manway and Varda after things are revealed later on, right? Um, where Manway confesses, not that he knew it all along, because he didn't know it all along, but that he always knew that it was a possibility, um, but that he... Basically, he, he has to make a cho- Manway has to make a choice. Is he going to... Cho- because here's, here's... He said what he... You know, he knows what he's hoping that Melkor can do. And here's Melkor looking like he has done it, right? So Manway has a choice. He can either make the choice to proceed in hope, um, hope that Melkor is genuinely changed, or he could choose to fall, to be cynical about it, right? He could choose skepticism. Manway's, the question is not whether or not Manway was duped, Right. That I think is the, the that seems to be the, the issue that most people have when they read the Silmarillion, like how how is it that Manway gets suckered um, by Melkor? But I think the point is not that he's suckered. The point is he he has a choice between two 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 opportunities, right? He can either choose 
to in, to believe to 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 have hope, or he can choose not to have hope. In Melkorn, he chooses hope, even knowing that there's a good chance that that's not going to work out. Um, but that even if it doesn't, even that, uh, you know, and, and we can even get to a hint of the, like, you know, the evil shall be good to have been thing um, that goes there, that if he makes, if he chooses, you know, the choice he made in hope is going to be a choice which will still be a good choice to have made, even if it turns out that Melkor that that it was wrong. Do you see what I mean by that? So it's not even just like it was worth the risk. Yeah, it is worth the risk, but that's not the point, right? The point is deeper than that. It's not just that like eh, it may pan out, but it may it may not, but it's all right. You know, it still it was still it was still worth taking the chance, but no. Even though things seem to turn out badly, that's still it's still going to be better for him to have proceeded in hope. Um that because remember Iluvatar's will can't be thwarted, right? There's no question of Manway's decision. You know, it's easy to kind of read the Silmarillion and say, well, look at all the hardship that came from that wrong choice, right? If only they hadn't let Melkor out, everything would have been better. Really? Well, it could have been different, but it couldn't have been better, to quote Leaf by Niggle, right? Um, And I suspect that that's one of the things that Manway would say there. So anyway, I think we have the opportunity for some deep, uh, deep philosophy, uh, deep Silmarillion philosophy in that in that moment later on. Um, uh, But um, anyway, okay. Um, so. So Melkor at the trial, there should be no whiff of pride or like basically it's he should look exactly like Manway was hoping he would look. Manway's hopes are fulfilled and Nienna speaks for him in pity, right? And I think that should be that moment I think would be really cool. I mean Nienna speaking for him has to be a really central moving moment in the trial. There are some of course who just don't believe it, right? We know that um we know that Olmo and Tolkas uh, are still not happy, right? But see, <clears throat> Tolkas, the uh, the attitude of Tolkas should actually be like a foil for Manway, right? Tolkas should look merely intolerant. It just it totally does not matter what Melkor says or does, right? Um, there is literally no way. That there is nothing that Melkor could do to prove to Tolkis that he has amended, right? Tolkis is Tolkis is just closed-minded. He's correct, but he's closed-minded, <clears throat> and I think that that's how we can depict him, um, as you know, not as being. And I'm not saying. I mean, you all know I love Tolkis, so I'm not suggesting we depict him as like a, <clears throat> a you know, like a like 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 mean or or like a bigot or something like that. Um, as Mary, Marielle, exactly. Tolkien should be right for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, um, Melkor could even basically argue for himself, I think, you know, to say like, you know, he could ask the question, which would be a good question. Like what, what could I say that would satisfy you? Right. You know, I have, I, I am, you know, I have seen the error of my ways. I am willing, I'm, I'm willing to try to make amends. Uh, I, I, what could I do or say 
Tolkis that would satisfy, or he could ask everyone else, what could I do or say that would satisfy Tolkis? By the way, I don't think that Olmo should be very outspoken. I think that Tolkis should be the primary speaker uh, against uh, um, uh, Melkor. Um, well, because I think he would be, first of all. I mean, I just think he he's the one who would be loudest um, and the one likeliest to blurt out sort of embarrassingly. Um, yeah, Maria, I think Olmo just glowers. Glowering is, 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 is... We should be able to see that Olmo does not agree and he can vote against it. He can even make a speech or two, perhaps. But I think um, he's not... He, sh- he should not be making big arguments against it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Marie, good. Yes. Only Tolkas and Omo hold out entirely. I agree. I agree. Um, okay. Yeah. So Omo doesn't talk a lot. Tolkas talks a lot, but is kind of dumb, you know, in the way that he is and, uh, uh, and, and, and sounding intolerant and, and, uh, and, and then Nienna speaks. And when Nienna speaks about the importance of pity and mercy, um, uh, it, it, everything that she says is true. Um, and here we can be anticipating, and a couple of you were already talking about this. Chris Graham was talking about foreshadowing the pity of Bilbo for Gollum. Um, and also, uh, you know, foreshadowing the moment um, when, with, you know, when Frodo is sitting in judgment over Gollum as well, you know, with the Taming of Smeagol chapter and everything. I mean, that's, yeah, I, I, I think we, we should be actively uh, setting up those scenes. Um, because remember, that's one of the, that's one of the parallels here, right? Um, and that's one of the things that I'm getting at when I say that it's not at all obvious to me that Manway made the wrong choice. Um, and I don't think we should show it as being obvious that that was the wrong choice. Um, just as you could argue that Frodo was wrong in sparing Gollum, right? Um, it would be easy to say, like, Frodo was a fool um, to trust Gollum as much as he did when Gollum was betraying them and Gollum was, was, was not trustworthy in the end. Does that make Frodo's decision wrong? No. The events show that it doesn't make him wrong, right? If he hadn't, if, you know, the 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 if Bilbo hadn't had mercy on Gollum, if Frodo had not had mercy on Gollum, the ring would not have been destroyed. And I think we can sort of suggest the same thing on a much, much bigger scale, right? The same kind of thing. Um, in fact, I would want to have a follow-up, you know, maybe the conversation is between Manway and Nienna or Manway Varda and Nienna. Um, I would like to have a follow-up conversation with the, with Nienna later on, or maybe between Nien and some, maybe, maybe there needs to be an antagonist in the conversation, maybe like Tolkis or Olmo or somebody else, Orame maybe, um, who's basically says, I, I, I want somebody to say to Nienna, so I guess you were wrong, right? I guess it was, it was, it was wrong to have, to have, to show pity to him and to have her say, no, no, it was not wrong. Um, that was the right choice, and I'd do it again. Basically, um, uh, that it's it, and again, and and I, I'm thinking here of you know, Gollum is 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 in many ways my uh, my model uh, for this here. Um, but um, anyway, anyway, um, yeah, okay. Um, now, what's Mandos doing? Marielle asks. Um, Nothing. 
sitting there immovable. Looking inscrutable. Looking yes. inscrutable, yes. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. <clears throat> if we wanted to be really infuriating, we could have him and Vire exchanging glances sometimes, right? <laughs> like the two of them know what's, you know, what's going to come, but Ooh, neither of them I like are talking, that. right? Um, yeah, yeah, because I mean, I that's... mean, remember who we've got as Mandos too. I, I can't remember his name now, but the 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 black actor. Yes, I mean, he... yes, awesome. Yeah, yeah, Heimdall. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Idris right. Elba. Yeah, 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 exactly. So no, Zelda, just yeah. he just he has to make his his impassive his impassive face, and uh, and yeah, he 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 stays he stays silent. Yeah, um, he stays silent. Um, uh. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, and yeah, this is not. I mean, because see, this is this this is the thing. I mean, he's the doomsman of the Valar. He's not a. He doesn't go in for. You know. He's not their pipeline to the future, right? You know, he's not their like phone a friend to to like figure out what's going to happen in the future and what's the right thing to do. That's not his role. Um. So, yeah, yeah, I, 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 that's he declares the dooms of the Valar. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think. <clears throat> um, of course, we we have to avoid making him look intolerably smug, right? Uh, I mean, it could come off really badly, like if. Like, for instance, there has to be no hint of an eye roll or anything when he's like, so it is doomed, right? You know, there's just not like, like, okay, well, I know you guys just made a stupid decision, but whatever, I'm going along with it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and, of course, that phrase, so it is doomed, is, of course, deliciously vague, right? Um, it partakes of the full double meaning of the word doomed, right? So fate has decreed, that means, but also, so you have decided. Both, both true, uh, both uh, an exact, um, um, an exact characterization of that moment, right? Um, yeah, so Mandos, Mandos doesn't do a lot. Um, but yes, Melkor, totally repenting. I, we have a humble Melkor. Genuinely humble. Okay, not genuine, because we know that it's not. We know that it's all an act. But, um, but, not even just like on his dignity, but pr- promising to play. With with this, sh- this is like our opportunity to imagine what a good Melkor would be like, right? If Melkor, if somebody with his, you know, his abilities and and talents and everything really had been a good guy all along, what would he have been like? That's what we need. That's how we need to think when we're thinking about Melkor in this, because he should exactly fulfill uh, Manway's hopes there. Um, He should be, he should be repentant, absolutely repentant. And of course, the thing, and so again, coming back to the question of where does the conflict lie, the conflict lies all in interpretation, 
right? Um, all in interpretation. Um, and see, that's the cool thing about uh, about Tolkas, because Tolkas then becomes the foil for the viewers, right? Because the viewers are presum- presumably going to be looking at, even those who don't know the Silmarillion, are going to be looking on it being like, yeah, I don't buy that, right? Like, no, he's totally faking it. But if you say he's totally faking it, then you're in the camp with Tolkas, right? Um, and if we make him look rash and you know, unsympathetic, not totally unsympathetic, not hateful, but, um, you know, someone whose opinion you don't necessarily want to be classed with, right? Um, then I, I think that that's, that's Ruka. So yeah, so you as a viewer can believe that he's really, uh, that he's, uh, you know, if you, if you have, uh, if you're as narrow-minded as Tolkis, you also can assume that he's uh, just faking it the whole time, right? Um and yeah, Carita says, some of us will hope beyond all hope that Melkor really is repentant. Yeah, absolutely. Again, if we've done our jobs in the first season and a half, especially the first season depicting Melkor, we'll want him to repent, right? I mean, that should be a very attractive idea. And Hakan, yeah, he has to have a gripping speech full of remorse, real, genuine remorse. Um, okay, now let's, get on, let's go on to the elf question. Are the elves present at the trial, and what role do they have? Now, there was a lot of discussion of this, pros and cons. There were many people who were arguing for uh, representatives of the elves being there, like ambassadors of the elves being there. Um, Trish, did you have any strong feelings about this question? Uh, No, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, No. Well, I think I sort of start with my first premise of Melkor being really good, right? Looking really good. Um, And, you know, so I don't want to have any foreshadowing of his influence, like his his evil influence over the elves later on. You know, that seems to me, you know, that would be, um, uh, that would be, that would be, that that would give away the game. We we don't want to give away the game. Um, Yeah. Okay, now, see, now, but now here we come to it. So this is, Nick was just saying here something that he said on the discussion boards and something several people were saying on the discussion boards, which is the primary thing I wanted to address. Um, uh, Nick says, he does think that some of the elves should be there, otherwise the Valar appear to be acting on their behalf without letting them know what's going on. Um, That's the benefit, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with you. That's the whole (laughs) point. Um, That is the... Because what does Melkor have to work on, right? Remember, we've got to get the elves doubting, not just being restless and saying, hey, you guys want to pop over to Middle-earth, right? We've got to get them to the point where they are suspicious of the Valar themselves, where they are rejecting the Valar and openly rebelling against the Valar themselves. We've got to get them there, and we've got to get them there relatively soon, right? We don't have all that long to get them there. Certainly Feanor is going to get there soon. Um, and in the published Silmarillion, that's the, the ignorance of the elves is the thing that Melkor takes primary advantage of. They haven't explained, the Valar haven't explained 
why they brought the elves over. So Melkor works on that and suggests that, you know, all of these insidious ideas about them bringing in order to usurp their, their and, and oh, because they wanted to reserve Middle Earth for, for men. Oh, didn't they tell you there's going to be another race of children? Oh, gosh. Yeah, there's going to be. Um, and uh, and gosh, it kind of looks like the Valar are, are, are wanting to to make them appear, uh, you know, to, 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 to let them take over. So, yeah, I, I think the Valar, absolutely. This is, this is Valar business. The, the trial of Melkor is totally Valar business. Um, I mean, it connects to the elves, but I really don't think that they, um, I really don't think that they, they would like, it would occur to them to bring the elves into this. I don't think they view the elves as peers in that way. Certainly not. About I, you know, it's interesting like you say that because I, I was wondering if we should have any kind of conversation amongst them about should we include the elves or should we not. But you're, to your point you just made, it wouldn't even occur to them. Now, I, somehow we I, should I'm show that, surprised. right? Yeah. I mean, somehow we need to show that it would not occur to the Valor. I'm not sure you do that, but to explain why it wouldn't even have come up for them to, you know include the elves. I mean, it's, it's kind of like family business, right? It is family, family business. business. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is family business. And they, I mean, it's not like the elves have anything to contribute. Like, to, I mean, how can they evaluate whether or not Melkor should be set free? I mean, they didn't know him, right? Um, they, they have no background on this other than what they've heard, like, distantly secondhand. So, um, I... So yeah, it's not exactly it's not exactly uh, 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 relevant there. Uh, no, so again, Nick is saying he's not worried about the elves being suspicious of the Valar. He's worried about the audience. Um, yeah, I hear that. Um, well, isn't it just one more example of mi- the mistakes that the Valar make? Well, yeah, Maybe. it is. It yeah. is. Um, and it's something that could maybe perhaps be dealt with in the frame. We could add that to the list of things to talk about. Conceivably, yeah. I mean, well, because I mean, I mean, Nick, to your point, it's honestly it's one of the challenges in the published Silmarillion, right? That is to say, the question: Why the heck didn't the Valar tell them any of these things? Is never answered, right? We don't know why the Valar didn't, and so. It is, to me, one of those moments where the Valar kind of end up looking dumb in the published Silmarillion um, and even dumber in the like in in the in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, So. So, yeah, it's it's I I find that um, I find that. Tricky, I find that tricky. Um, And I think the way we could really okay so this this kind of begs the bigger question and one which interestingly it's i am interested in the fact that this didn't even come up in the last episode or the episode before what is the how are we going to handle the relationship between the valar and the elves in valinor how do we depict this do they all just hang out together 
<laughs> That's a really good question. Do we often see the Valar just like walking around, like Valar and elves walking around in mixed company? You know, are we going to have, uh, you know, like as as people are strolling around in Valinor, are we going to have like off in the background we can see, you know, like a like a like a, a pickup game of ultimate frisbee with some Maiar and some elves and stuff in the background? Like, do they just hang out? Do they just meet on the street and talk and recreate? Do they live in different places? Um, do they do they live in different places but visit each other occasionally? Do they do? I mean, how how much do they mix exactly? My sense is that they don't mix that much. They don't just hang out. They don't live together exactly. Um, uh, they they um, the Valar have their places, right? The elves are welcome to visit their places, as we see most notably in Lorien, of course. Um, but presumably, like, elves could go to Nienna's house, right? It's a bit of a hike, but they could go, right? Um, uh, they're not super welcome in Mandos, but that's, a, that's an exception. The Vanyar, of course, increasingly go to... And that's why, you know, the, the, the big deal of the Vanyar moving up onto the mountain. Basically, they go up to the mountain to visit the house of Manwe and Varda so often that they're like, we're sick of the commute, we're going to move. Right. Um, we're going to actually live up here on the mountain itself. Um, so I don't think they I don't think they, um, you know, they, they interact with Aule. They can go to Aule's house. Right. And learn from Aule. But it's not like they set up their little workbenches next to Aule's workbench. Right. I mean, I don't really think that's I don't really think that that's going to happen. Now, Brian, you're right. Brian Fatterini points out that um, we've got Orame and the Sons of Feanor. Yeah, but those are outings, right? Again, that's not, that's not, I mean, yes. So we, Orme is going to hunt with them. But see, Orme is a little different. He doesn't have a house, right? He, he doesn't, like, he, he, so basically going hunting with Orme is the same thing as visiting Lorien, you know, for some, for a little R&R or going to Aule's house, you know, for a little, uh, you know, for like a, a, a training seminar, uh, going to go hunting with Orame is the same thing. But that doesn't mean that, like, you live with him. Right. It doesn't mean you're going to, like, you know, get a timeshare with Orame or something. It's it, they don't they don't. That's not um, that's not the kind of uh, the kind of interaction that they have. Um Yes, they're hanging out in their hunts, but you see what I mean with again it's just like it's not that they can never be together. It's not that they never interact with them. It's just that they don't they they still have kind of parallel cultures, parallel homes. Do you see what I mean? Um I I so I think that seems to me important. Um and if we establish that fairly clearly that basically the Valar are accessible to them, but they, the elves, have to, like, make an effort. Um, and it's not to say that the Valar never visit them. But maybe they don't very often. Like, do the Valar usually go to Tyrion? I don't know that they do, actually. Or Alqualande? Um, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure that they go there very often. I think they let the elves come to them. Maybe? I don't know. But in any case, um, if they're, if they're clearly living separate, like, they're neighbors, they're not housemates, the Valar and, and, and the elves, right? And if that's the case, it makes the non-communication a little bit easier. Um, you know, they, 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 they speak to them and they, they share with them and they teach them and they, uh, and they help them. But they're not, 
sharing all their intimate affairs. Um, They're benevolent. They're sort of benevolent, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to think of a... I'm trying to think of a parallel, you know, like how you would be with children. No, um, but close, I guess. To being kids, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thinking of it. Yeah, they're. I mean, it's a little bit of that. It's got to have some tinge of that. I mean, first of all, they're the children of Luvatar, right? And plus, I mean, the Valar. It's like they were the Ainur, you know. I mean, come on. Right. So it's, but it's not a conscious thing on their part, right? I mean, it's not. They don't have. It's an unas. It's an unexamined assumption, sort of thing that they they would be separate and conduct their own business separately and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. As Timothy Fisher says, there's a distinct ontological hierarchy. Yeah, they are different orders of being, and yeah. I don't think that should be lost. I mean, I you know, they're not just buddies, right? I mean, that's that's never the relationship that they have. They're never they. That's what I mean when I say they don't just hang out. You know, we don't just see them constantly mingling and 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 you know you know playing like mixed doubles with the Valar. It's just not how they do. Um it doesn't mean they're inaccessible. They should be accessible. But you have to access them. And I can't think of a parallel because see the the problem of thinking of a, yeah. of, a, of a of like an analogy Trish is that you can think of several different analogies, right? Yeah. I mean the relationship yeah. between the Valar and the elves has some things in common with parents and children. Several things, yeah, right. It has some things in common with big sibling, little sibling, right? Because they're right. both children of Iluvatar, really, in a sense. <clears throat> um, it has it has some things in common with humans and pets, right? I mean, uh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. I, I, and no, none of those three. Relationships they don't fit. exactly yeah. fit, or, or are a perfect yeah. parallel. Um, yeah. Although that's kind of that could be used to our advantage, though, because it could vary. You know, I mean, it could it could move through all three of those things at various times, and and from various Valar. You know, um, so there's no there won't be like an exact. It's it's this analogy, but it could be. A little bit of this and a little bit of that, and at different times it's different, and from different ones it's different. I don't know. I don't know if that serves any kind of purpose, but yeah, and, and the different characteristics of the different Valar would also. I mean, like their personalities yes, would true. also dictate right. the the way. Right. So, so why Orame? I think you know, in the, when they get to know Orame, like he's kind of scary at the beginning, but when they when they get to know Orame, I think Orame would be one of the more like buddy buddy of the of the Valar. Like he 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 invites them on hunts with him. And so they. And I assume Olmo would be approachable, wouldn't he? Be approachable because he's kind of pro Middle Earth, or no? Well, see, that's tricky, because he. But I. Hmm. Maybe he doesn't approve of them being there, so it could be the opposite. He. Yeah, I mean, he's the one who is more like in their corner than anybody else. But I don't know that they hang out with him necessarily. Yeah, yeah. In yeah, some ways, I would yeah. think he'd be even more aloof. But uh, yeah. Um, but it's but it's. It's kind of. Asse. I mean, they could, you know, Asse could play tricks on them, actually. (laughs) You know, be a little mischief. Yeah, but, or Nienna, you know, I I would think Nienna would be very empathetic. Um, Yeah, but I think she'd be a little, I think uh, she'd be a little intimidating that, like, there would be some, you know, like, I'd, True. Nina's house isn't exactly a good time, you know. Like it's <laughs> it's not fun. Nina's house is not fun. 
Um, what about what about the Maiar? I mean, does Aloran, for example, do we portray any kind of affinity that he naturally feels toward the elves? Does yes. he become a friend? Yes. You know, do we do we sow that seed? Yes. Carefully. I know, I know. This is, you know, I, it's uh, like you said, we've ne- we haven't really brought it up, and it's not exactly a straightforward no. thing, is it? No, yeah, and the Meyer, uh, the the Meyer are in the middle. Um, Hakon, exactly, yeah, and Aloran was uh, Hakon was thinking about Aloran as well. Um, uh, um, I don't think it's a can we can kick. No, oh, come on, sure. <laughs> There's no can I can't kick. Uh, <laughs> um, the thing with Aloran, the thing that we have to be careful of with Aloran and Kuramo um, and Iwendel, that is with uh, with Gandalf, Saruman, and Radagast, we can't make them such buddies with the elves that the elves recognize them, right? Right. I, mean, I, I, I don't think... <sighs> Like the I also don't think between... we want to set. I don't think we want to set them up. In other words, I don't think we want to make Saruman a real, you know, jerk. No, I think we have to resist. You know that. what I mean? We don't want to. Yeah, we don't want to get them already set in their roles. I think that needs to be not right. clear. Right. Right. That right. Kermo may actually, you know, like them. I mean, we could do that. I mean, are the three of them? I don't know. No, it's because they don't really hang out. Those three don't really hang out together anyway, do they? No. No. Certainly not. Uh, certainly not Radagast and Saruman. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, that's that's like the odd couple when they come over to, to Middle Earth <laughs> together. Uh, the odd couple with Kuramo rolling his eyes with, the entire time. With, um, Sir, with Sermon being Felix, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, now, Chris points out that we have a Meyer Marian elf, so there has to be a closer relationship with them. Well, no, they're closer to them. But see, it's actually, Chris, I was thinking of Melian in part when I was saying we have to be careful. Because we that has to be exceptional, right? We don't want there to be um, the 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 marriage of Thingol and Melian has to remain a special grace, like this unparalleled thing that happens, because it is unparalleled. Um, and yeah, I, to me, that's actually one of the cautions that we have to keep in mind. We don't want the relationship between the Maiar, any of the Maiar, any of the other Maiar, that is, um, and the elves, to be such that, you know, marriage would seem like a natural step for anybody, right? Like, for instance, we would never want, ever, ever, now, because like, remember, we're going to have Goadriel and Gandalf together in Valinor, right? So we want to think about how do we want to prepare that relationship? To what extent do we want to have, you know, so that when Gandalf and and Galadriel are interacting later on, you know, in the Third Age, that we already have the base of the base, you know, the foundation of a a friendship between them and a relationship between them and Valinor. Um, We can do that. We can choose not to do that if we want to, but we have that opportunity. But goodness knows we never want to have the Maiar and the elves interacting in such a way that anyone in the audience is asking, why doesn't Gandalf marry Gandalf marry Goadriel? Right? Like, that's just, that shouldn't be on the table. It it should be, Thingol and Melian should be deviant in a good way, but deviant. Um, So, uh, so yeah. And Marie, that's my inclination too. My inclination as well is that we don't have uh, Gandalf and Goadriel be buddies. Um, and remember, in the Valaquenta, when um, when 
uh, Tolkien talks about Aloran, um, he's not even really known to the elves. Like he comes among them and they don't know whence come the, the fair visions that, that, that come to them. So he kind of like walks among them unseen basically. Um, uh, so I don't think he's everybody's buddy. Um, but, uh, so, so yeah, we want to be, we, we want to be careful, but exactly. Marie was just thinking of exactly the same, the same passage they, uh, he knows them, but they don't know him. Exactly. Exactly. Now, again, we don't necessarily have to do that entirely. You know, we can, we can choose to make him known to some of the elves if we want to, but again, yeah, he can't just be like, when Gandalf comes, it can't be like, Hey, it's our old buddy, Alora and awesome. Good to see you again. You know, it's been, it's been a while. It, it can't or, be like, we can't, or we, can, we can't do like a, have we met before? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think that that should be that. I think that would strike the wrong note, uh, with the wizards when they, when they arrive. Um, yeah, but, um, uh, okay. So, so we have the separation of their cultures. Now, uh, uh, Nick, I'm coming back to your point before about the list, the viewers, uh, understanding of the Valar, right, and how their secrecy or their non-revelation of facts um, uh, relates to, uh, or you know, how, how the how the how the viewers look at that. If we just show them as being separate, it doesn't seem like they're being. Se- I mean, if they're if they're if they're buddies, if they're hanging out, right, if they're all you know in one happy commune together, then it would seem weird for them not to share everything with them, right? For them to keep the elves in the dark about anything. But if they're, if there's still clearly a hierarchical relationship between them, which I think there should be, um, you know, they're clearly not interacting as peers. If they're not interacting as peers and they're not really sharing, they're not really have the same culture. They're not exactly living together. It becomes more natural. Like what, why should they, especially about, about men, because remember, they don't know much about men. They know that there's going to be another race, but they're kind of waiting, right? waiting to see what it looks like and what's going to happen. So they don't tell the elves about it because they don't know much about it. Um, and so it's just it's not come up because it's not the time. They know it's not the time yet. Um, they haven't come yet and they're waiting. But they're they're you know, so I, it's I think it's easy enough to think about that as a as a quite innocent um, uh a quite innocent not talking about it. Um, uh, you know, just like it, it never came up and it hasn't been important yet. And, and they don't know that much about it anyway. So they, they've, they've just, you know, they've never talked to the elves about it and then have, have it seem all insidious later on that they've been keeping this as this momentous thing as, a, as a deliberate secret um, or conspiracy. But so back to Melkor, um, I am not violently opposed to having elves or some representatives of elves at the trial. As long as Melkor is like appearing a hundred percent repentant and everything, um, then it's fine. Like basically then we just, all we would have to do is make the elves or at least the Noldor, um, totally on the side of those who are like, a, you know, Manway and Nienna and everybody else, you know, they, they totally buy it. Right. Um, that's possible. It doesn't create any big difficulties, but let me, let me just say the two other things that I was thinking here. I'm thinking of Feanor's speech. Um, now of course, Feanor's speech doesn't happen until season three, but remember the thing that he says when, when he says, 
of Melkor. Is he not Vala as they? Right? The implication that Feanor makes in that speech is like, basically, Feanor is seem, always seems to me to be kind of saying the darkening of Valinor was an inside job. Right? In a sense. Um, not that he's suggesting there was a conspiracy by the Valar to do this, but basically it's like, this is a this was family business, right? He's one of them. And the implication, I, the implication I've always taken is we can't trust them because he's one of them, right? Um, if, uh, if he is one of them, how can we trust that they are not like him, at least in some ways, right? Because he is casting aspersions against the Valar. He is saying, like, we can't trust them. Right. We can't trust them. They've been keeping secrets. Um, they are they are trying to keep us down. Um, I, you know, I think I think they're all, you know, not so they're all in this together. I'm not saying that he's actually suggesting a conspiracy, an active conspiracy, but basically he's painting them all with the same brush. And I think you I think we should set that up, actually. I think that that's something that we we this what should not at first look like a divide between the Valar and the elves, like the culture of the Valar and the culture of the elves, this sort of living near to each other, but not quite together should be something that kind of looks a little bit ominous later on, or can be made to look ominous when you begin to look at it from the point of view that Feanor is taking at the end. Um, so this is why I kind of like the, you know, so, so I was when thinking about the question of, what what the elves' point of view would be and, like, what the Valar would tell the elves about, about Melkor. And some of you guys were kind of joking about this earlier on, you know, thinking about, um, uh, you know, parents. Uh, yeah, Nick was saying before, like, uh, you know, imagining a parent saying, hey, kids, re- re- remember that guy I said tried to burn down our house and kill you all when you were first born? Well, he says he's sorry, and now he's going to come live with us, right? Um, yes, that that that's a weird situation, right? Um, but but that is the situation. I mean, it is the situation and 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 they 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 have no reason to doubt it, right? Whether they're there at the trial or not, that's the situation, right? The only question so I mean basically, they need to be convinced of it too, initially convinced um, that he's good and trustworthy now. Um, they know that he, they know who he is. They know what, that he was condemned. Um, but, um, uh, uh, but now they accept that he's trustworthy. So whether they accept it at the trial or whether they accept it after the trial, I don't think it makes any difference as far as the elves' relationship to Melkor is concerned. But what I like about them not being at the trial is that it, it opens that little door for Feanor's objections later on. If basically the first they hear of Melkor's release is like Melkor and Manwe standing, uh, you know, at least uh, uh, symbolically arm in arm, right? And the Valar introducing him and being like, here is Melkor, he is now reformed, uh, he is one of us, welcome him. Um, I like that. I, you know, that, that, that kind of, that, that, that line that it draws... Um, explicit. So, because I think what I dislike most about the elves being at the trial, I dislike the idea of the elves being, even if they don't have a vote, 
of the sense of like the elves themselves passing judgment on him, I, I I'd rather have them be asked to accept him after the Valar have passed judgment on him, rather than have them be part of the judicial process, even witness of the judicial process. Um. Uh. So. That's what I, that that's 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 what I think about that. Um. Now. People are talking about how Tolkien actually depicted it and how this happens at the gates of Valmar. <sighs> First of all, I'm not 100% convinced that that necessarily means... it. W- I, this sounds like a really bizarre thing to say. I'm not necessarily convinced that that means it was a totally public venue. Um, uh, at the gates, that's a classic... That's a medieval thing. Um, that's a biblical thing. Uh, um, the gates are the seat of judgment. Um, and I'm not convinced that at the gate that that the judgment happening at the gates of Valmar means that the elves necessarily were there. He doesn't say that they were there. Um, I'm not I'm not sure that 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 means that the elves were necessarily there. Um, remember they didn't live in Valmar, the elves. Um, so the 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 image that I. The image that I understand Tolkien is invoking when he describes the trial of Melkor happening at the gates of Valmar is that he is being called to account. He's being called to justice before the um, at the seat of authority. The gates are always the seat of authority, specifically the seat of the seat of judgment. Um, and uh, um, and 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 the idea of it's being like you know, accountable, you know, him being called to like called to account before the city. But, but again, but it's Valmar, it's not Tyrion. Right. So it's, it's, he's being called to account. The idea seems to me to him to be called to account before all of the Valar, before the Ainur, not necessarily before the elves. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Well, there, there, everyone. We just had a summing up of this particular episode. <laughs> the size, yeah. Yes, I don't know. I mean, he sees the elves. I mean, I guess they're there. I don't even know that they have to be. He sees them. He has seen them. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Well, even if they are there in the book, I don't want them to be. I would want to change that. And the reason I would want to change that is that is I want to have that that cleavage open. That I... <clears throat> I want there to be, I want to take full dramatic advantage of the misinterpretations because it's all going to be this, this is, that's going to be, I mean, in a sense, that's the real drama of the end of season one and the beginning of season two is interpretation and reinterpretation, right? Um, Us interpreting Melkor 
and you know the Valar trying to interpret Melkor, the elves trying to interpret Melkor, us trying to interpret Melkor. Is he really good? Seriously? Has he actually changed his mind? Right? Um, and then reevaluations. No, he didn't really change his mind. So what has he been doing then? Let's go back and relook at all of the things that he's done and said now in light of the proof that we get later on in the season that he actually is bad. This is what the Valar do, right? When F- Feanor draws his sword on Fingolfin, that um, that they um, that they they now go back and they're like, okay, shoot, what's been happening, right? How did this happen? And let's 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 get to the bottom of it. So we go back and reevaluate, and then, um, uh, and then they, and then there's the 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 reinterpretation that Fanor is doing, right? As he is becoming more and more proud and more and more discontented, now he is going back and reinterpreting, in, like invidiously reinterpreting all of the stuff that that the Valar have done and said in the past, which they meant perfectly benevolently, right? But now it has, a, it has, a, it's been given a suspicious look by Melkor and he can't shake it, right? He still carries on thinking that way, even after he begins hating Melkor more than all the rest of them. Um, so I, I want to take full dramatic advantage of that. And I think I just, that image of Melkor being presented to them you know, as like part of the Valar united front seems to me important or at least something that could be used really well. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm willing to be outvoted by the people on this. If you guys really want the elves to be there, they can be there. I don't think it's I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, I don't think that the whole the you know, the story really rests on it. But I like it better if they're not there, because I like the the introducing the whole, the, the gap, the divide, because there's going to be a divide. There's going to be, um, and we need to show both some Feanor and, 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 and many of the Noldor choosing to interpret it one way and others like Ingwe and Finarfin choosing to interpret it another way. Um, and I want that gap to be visible enough. Okay, so Nick is asking, uh, why do I think Tolkien makes the opposite choice? Because the emphasis there, Nick, is not on what the elves think of Melkor. Um, the point of that one sentence in which they're mentioned, the emphasis of the sentence, um, it's, not an, it's, it's not an elf story. That's a, it's a Melkor story. It's about Melkor's envy. Uh, Tolkien is presenting there the envy and hatred of the elves that grow up and that, 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 is, that, that is born in Melkor's heart. Right. And how solidified he is in his hatred and envy of the elves. That's the emphasis there. Um, The glory of the elves and how like smug they all look and knowing, as he does, that it was for their sake that he was overthrown um, and he resents them and how how like happy and prosperous they are and everything. Um, So that's um, that's. That's the that's the emphasis of Tolkien's passage there. Um, we we're never we're not told a thing about like what the elves think or what the you know the elves don't have don't take any part in the discussion that we are told of. We're not told what they think about it. Um, we're told nothing about the elves' point of view. So I think like the elves, and this is I think the other problem that I have is that since we know nothing about that, I would kind of rather have them 
look at Melkor not as like, oh, you're the ex-con, right? Yeah, okay, right, yeah. We, no, we, we were there at your trial, right? I'm, I'm glad they let you out of the clink. It puts them in a different relationship with him, right? I mean, it, it puts them at least vicariously in, an, in, in a judicial relationship with him, even if they just witnessed his trial. It's hard for them. Not, it's hard for them not to get like, oh yeah, I was at your trial, right? Good to talk to you again, right? Um, whereas again, if the, if he is just presented, and the, it's not like they're going to be in ignorance of the fact that the trial happened, but like if the Valar come to them and say, "We've had a trial. He has repented, and we want you to welcome him," um, is uh, um, that's that's. Um, to me, that puts their relationship on a much more in a much different and more interesting footing um, and 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 easier for them to accept him. Um, yeah. So, Marie, I agree where or how Melkor sees the elves is not the issue. And that's exactly why, Marie, since I feel like it's it's Melkor's seeing of the elves and envying the elves. That's what we get from the published text. That's the emphasis of the published text. And we don't need it there. I absolutely agree. In fact, I don't want it there. It's too much. We want the emphasis to be on Melkor's character and on Melkor's repentance. Um, we can't, in fact, we can't show him. Be We can't give obvious evidence of his looking at them and envying them and hating them in his heart. Um, what Tolkien, Tolkien was showing us, the behind the scenes, exactly the behind the scenes that for dramatic purposes we're wanting to conceal here. Um, we're not telling a different story, but we're unfolding it in a different way. And that's why I think having the elves not there at the trial, that not be on the table at the trial, um, makes it much cleaner and much easier for us to do. Um, uh, Nick asks, so if this happens at the gates of Valmar, how do we keep, uh, how do the Valmar keep curious elves out? Um, they just, uh, they set up a cordon around it. You know, there's like a police line, basically. We have, uh, we have burly Maiar bailiffs, you know, saying, move along, there's nothing to see here. Um, SWAT team with, with shields. Exactly, right? yeah, Body yeah, shield. yeah, exactly. Body shields. It's all, it's all good. Um, <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, no, but I, I don't think it has to. I don't think, it, I think this should happen in the Ring of Doom. I think this should happen in the Ring of Doom next to the trees, this should be. This should be not. Um, I, I'm. I'm. I, I'm fine leaving the gates of Valmar behind for this. It. It doesn't have to be the gates. Um, uh, okay. So when in the episode does the trial end? Uh the middle. Um, the 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 middle. It's not the end. I think. Um, uh, it's the. It should be when I. The. Anyway. I don't know when exactly, but it's not the culmination of the episode at all. I, 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 I'm, I, several of the things that you guys were talking about on the discussion boards um, was very helpful for me in thinking through basically back to the really important question of what do we need to accomplish, right? What is it that we need to, you know, what are the checkboxes that we need to tick off uh, in, b- before we get to the end of episode 10? Right. Like, whom do we need to get born? Whom do we need to get married? What, what kids do we need to, to then bring around of theirs? Um, what other things do we need to establish? There's still a long list of things that need to be established by the Noldor here, you know, among the Noldor here, not to mention their relationship with Melkor. Um, so, uh, so, yet we do need to include a good chunk of that. Now, I have a question. Did we get Finway remarried? 
Did that happen in the last episode? The remarriage oh, to Indus. Did we talk about that? I mean, I, we talked about it, and we talked about the, the remarriage question in general, of course, in the one before where we were talking about the death of Muriel. We didn't actually have the event, though, did we? Did I mean, I don't know that we did, but it has to, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. That, that's, no, did we get Fingolfin and Finarfin born last time? We did get them born. That's true, we did, because we talked about the okay. relationship with... Um, Yes, Fanar. with, with Fanar. Fanar. We didn't actually call out the wedding per se. Yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure that we have to do it like a big deal. Yeah. Okay, no, it has to be. Does it happen off off screen? That's what I'm thinking. I think we just, you know, kind of like one of those, like, you know, for the second marriage, you don't do the big whole ceremony, you know, with the, with, you know, you don't, you don't have flower girls and ring bearers and, you know, you just do like a quiet little ceremony, you know, with the justice of the peace. I, I, that's what I'm kind of thinking we have with, uh, with, right. with, with, with Finway and Indus, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So they, they have a, they have a small offstage thing. Um, uh, okay. All right. Um, Okay, yeah. So, 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 so they're married. Okay. So, um, I just, I just wanted to make sure because I, 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 when I was thinking through this episode, I had the feeling that like I'd skipped that. So I just wanted to make sure. Wait. Okay. Um. So. Weddings. Yeah, Marie, you made this wonderful point. Um, I love the point that you made. Very, very foresighted point that she made about season. Here's Marie uh, wanting to make sure that we are uh, are ac- accurately setting up season five, uh, which uh, or no four season four, uh, which is very, very appropriate, uh, Marie, to be thinking in this way. Um, and that is. Um, uh, Ignor, uh, Ignor, and Andreth. When we get this other, the tragic elf human love affair that we're going to do in season four, um, which I'm so looking forward to. Um, and anyway, uh, the the he won't marry her, um, and the reason he won't marry her, we're told, is that you know the elves don't marry or have children in times of war. They like that, you know, when, when, when things are unsettled and, and, uh, boy, uh, if I had a nickel for the number of times I heard, I've heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So, <laughs> so Marie's argument was that we need to make sure that that holds water, right? We can't, if, if, if Ignor is going to be saying that to Andreth, we need to make sure it doesn't sound like a lame excuse, right? Because yeah, if, yeah. If, if we have all the other Noldor still getting married at that point, then like, I, it's going to sound like Ignor is like, no, 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 really, it's not you, it's me, right? We can't possibly, I, I just, um, so, so th- that has to be, that has to be an established thing at that point, which means that essentially every Noldor who needs to get married and have kids has got to get married and have kids prior to, and I thought Marie's suggestion of the, uh, the, the feast of, of, uh, of, what was, yeah, the, 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 the feast of reuniting was a really Hi. good, um, Sweet pea. A really good indication. Do you have your cat there, Trey? Oh, sorry. I thought I was on mute. No, it's my little old man. (laughs) Oh, your little old man. Yeah, the little old schnauzer who's... The the who on in the background? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. This is my little 16-year-old who's decrepit and arthritic. and So I will mute myself. (laughs) Sorry. <laughs> a little glimpse in the life of Ross Gobel over there. Um, yeah, really, really. 
<laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So I agree. The feast of reuniting is a great time for the um, for the 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 last marriages and and Marie, I think you even mentioned Galadriel and Celeborn. That 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 is a very sensible time uh, for Galadriel and Celeborn to get married. Um, so anyway, good. Yeah. So, 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 yep. Agreed. We do need to get folks married. I'm not real excited to depict a lot of weddings. Um, I don't think weddings are, are super exciting on screen. Uh, usually, in fact, they're not. Well, unless everybody gets killed, you know. Well, yes. Okay. There are some weddings that are more exciting than others, I suppose, but <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but, uh, but yeah, we do need to, we do need to. So let's emphasize the people who, um, the, I mean, the main issue really is right. is not the weddings. It's the wives, right? We've got to, we, we, we've got to bring in the women folk who, who often don't get brought in, uh, to the main Silmarillion story. Um, um, so yeah, we should, um, um, <laughs> apparently the wedding planning is a, is a, a point of contention among the script folks. I can, I can, I can see this okay um uh okay so yeah um uh all right uh um no i think it's, it's okay maria i think i think i think nick is teasing carita but it's all right um so so whom do we need so what are what are other elf things that need to, so first of all i say we don't have a whole lot of melkor and the elves in the latter part of this episode i think we save that till the next episode because remember, the next episode is going to be the forging of the Silmarils, um, and the next episode should is really going to be kind of the meat of um, uh, is is really going to be the meat of the the like unrest of the Noldor and especially of Melkor's influence on the Noldor thing. So, um, so yeah, yeah. So we've got to do that. Um, but I don't think we have to do that now. I think we can save that and really make that the focal point of the next episode. Um, and so in this episode, we can just kind of we can we can mingle in the setting up the establishment of the the other characters that we need to establish. So okay, so we we need to develop Feanor, Fingolfin, and Fenarfin. Um, I agreed with a general sentiment on the discussion board that we need to start bringing in the third generation here, um, at least the eldest of them. My personal vote would be that primary emphasis should be on Fingon and Mithros. Um, uh, I would my I would vote to save uh, Kelegorm and Orome are another really important one. I agree with that, um, and I think that we should we should wait. I think we should save them for next episode, though. I don't want to do Kelegorm and and, uh, and Orome yet. Um, I want to do them in the next episode. Um, because I think it would be really cool if we showed the relationships of several Valar and like, we don't just want to have like Melkor hanging out with them. Right. It's like as if that were something weird and creepy, we want to show lots of elves hanging out with lots of different Valar and have Melkor be the, like, which of these things is not like the other thing. Um, but, um, okay. Anyway. Yeah. So, so we can have, uh, we can have, but young Fingon and Mithros. So we should totally have like Fingon and Mithros should be like inseparable middle schoolers, basically at this point. I think they, they should be, um, we should have the tension between their fathers. Um, 
But here, really, I think that some of the most important work I think we have to do is really establishing the characters of Feanor and Fingolfin. Really, of Fingolfin and Finarfin. We've established Feanor's character last time. Um, that was one of the that was one of the the, the primary things. Um, but um, Fingolfin. We didn't have mu- we d- we didn't get much of Fingolfin because we were establishing Fanor who he is and what he's like and his work as a smith and his marriage and all that stuff. So we can we can we can have you know Fingolfin should exist right, but I think it should be primarily Fanor like Fanor and 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 Nerdinel talking about his brothers right. Um, I think that we should really be meeting and getting to know Fingolfin and Finarfin better here. Um, uh, in this uh, in this episode, um, and then of course getting to beginning to see the relationship between Feanor and Fingolfin, though it's okay even if we don't do too much of that. I don't think we have to go too far with Feanor and Fingolfin's relationship in this episode because we have we have still the next one right. So um, Feanor's not going to draw his sword on Fingolfin until the end of the of the of the second episode from now so we can we still have a little bit of time for some gradual buildup of the tension in that relationship now so i don't even i think if we have like meet feanor in episode seven and meet fingolfin and finarfin in episode eight that's okay um you know we don't want to lose touch with feanor but um but then we kind of start making them interact and start having things get a little tetchy um in episode nine so we're okay um uh Karita's asking, how does Nerdinel feel about the brothers? Hmm. More positive than Feanor? I think Nerdinel should be aware of the fact that... Like, it should be pretty clear to Nerdinel that um, the problem that Feanor has with his brothers, that, like, his brother problem basically comes down to mommy issues, Right? I think that should be visible to Nerdinel. Um and although like she's Well it also would be the source of their strife probably too, his mommy issues. Yeah, I mean right? in, in the end she's not gonna go along with him, right? So I mean I think that she should sort of be cautioning him to some extent, right? That like um Yeah, I mean Karita's wondering if she is on Fanor's side at first, realizing that maybe uh, uh, he's part of the problem. I do think she's a voice of peace and harmony. I don't want to make her a really insipid voice of peace and harmony. If there's an insipid voice of peace and harmony, it's Finarfin, right? Um, uh, Finarfin is like the one that 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 everybody likes, but nobody wants to hang out with. I mean, he's he's. I just I think like if there's like a, a like a like a milk toast peacemaker, it's Finarfin, right? He's admirable and everything, but, um, uh, but, uh, but yeah. And I, I don't want to make Nerdinel too much like that. Nerdinel needs to be more fiery, right? Um, uh, in order for her to be a match to, cause basically if she's not, if she's not pretty spunky Nerdinel, um, then, uh, then her relationship with Fanor is going to be, they, we, we don't want, you know, Nerdinel to end up looking like the mousy little misses, right? You know, that, that, uh, bold, brilliant and audacious Feanor has at home, right? Obviously. Um, no, not because she's a redhead. <laughs> <Nick>. <laughs> <sighs> 
I'd rather change her hair color, but I don't care. She, whether or not she has red hair, she needs to be fiery. Don't be, let's, let's not do reverse discrimination and say that no redhead can ever be fiery. Um, but no, I mean, I'm just saying she's got to be, she, she, she needs to be, um, she can't just be insipid compared to Feanor. Um, she's got to be spunky and fiery and be his match in character and in will um, such that she stands against, you know, she, she's going to become something like his number one antagonist. Um, in fact, uh, uh, season three spoiler, you know, that role that is given to Galadriel in like Galadriel 3.0, where she becomes the like the primary. She's the one who resists Fanor and refuses to go along and everything. I'm kind of thinking of giving that role to Nerdinel, except she doesn't take a ship back to Middle Earth. Um, uh, but anyway, yeah. So so so, yes, Fanor is more fiery than Nerdinel. Um, uh, uh, he is he is he is the spirit of fire. But um, but she should really be his 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 match in that way. So I don't think that she's just like peacemaker is not her primary thing. Right. Um, I don't think that she's uh, she she's just like try to get along with your brother. He's not that bad. Um, But I do think she should kind of um, be under be sympathetic to Feanor, but should get in his face. Um, I I, I, I think that that's um, that's that's really that's really where, where 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 where. where that should go, that she tells him off um, for being impatient with his brother. And maybe she even, maybe she even, you know, maybe she even openly accuses him, right, of, of having mommy issues, right? Like, this is about your mom. Why are you taking this out on your brother, right? Like, this is, you know, maybe she, you know, I, I think she would, whether we have her say that to him on screen, I think she would, should be the kind of person who, um, who would say that to him. Um, Oh yeah, uh, 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 on the subject of women folk, Marielle was asking about this earlier. Do Fingolfin and Finarfin have sisters? Yeah, sure. Why not? Uh, sisters are good. Um, I have no problem with adding sensible female character, like sensibly adding female characters. Let me say, um, yeah, yeah, no worries. Um. Uh. So. Um. So yeah. That, that, that's kind of how I see Nerdinel's character and how I would want Nerdinel to act. Um, Fingolfin, we're going to have to be really careful with Fingolfin because he could come off looking really smarmy if we're not careful. Um, I think Fingolfin should be... Everyone loves Fingolfin. Who doesn't love Fingolfin? He's great, right? Everybody loves Fingolfin. Um, the the kind of the interesting situation between Fingolfin and Feanor is that Fingolfin. Uh, people were talking on the discussion board about uh, like whether he should be like the natural leader, such that the 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 viewers are like preferring him above Feanor and thinking he would make a better king than Feanor. Yes. Like, there's no question that Fanor is, or Fingolfin is a better leader than Fanor, right? His, like, relationship with the people is better. Um, he is, uh, uh, he's more generous. He's more self sacrificing. He's more, he's, he is a better leader. But Fanor is greater 
than he. And we can't lose sight of that. It, it would be easy to make Feanor look merely petty in his envy of Fingolfin. We don't want to create the situation where Fingolfin is genuinely the better, more admirable character of the two. And Feanor becomes like the brilliant elder brother whose younger brother is actually even brighter, is even like better than more brilliant than he and has like broken all of his high school athletic records and, uh, and resents it. We don't want to do that. Feanor is the greater of the two. Uh, Feanor is the bigger, you know, stronger, more beautiful, uh, uh, more, more intelligent, greater. He's, he is better in every dimension than Fingolfin, except he's not, He's not as not as good a people person, right? Except he he is he. It's just because of the choices that he makes. Um, so, so again, we have to be careful. We have to we have to be careful not to make Fingolfin look smarmy, and we have to be careful not to make Feanor look petty and small minded. Um, it's tricky. It's tricky. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. No, Nick, you're right. Stronger is not one of the the adjectives that he's it, in the long list of things of which Feanor is more than any other of the children of Iluvatar. You're right that stronger is not one of those adjectives. Um, I just I, I will stick by my my deliberately vague adjective greater. He is greater than Fingolfin um, and he and everybody else um, should be aware of the fact, including Fingolfin. Um, the fact that he is that he is greatest, um, yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, remember that although Fingolfin might be the better leader, Feanor has a greater has has greater charisma. It's Feanor who's going to get everybody to follow him um, and to to bring everyone else to reject the Valar, almost everybody else, to reject the Valar and leave Valinor, including Fingolfin's people. Um, so, you know, you can say Fingolfin is going along because he's abiding by the oath that he makes to follow his brother um, uh, somewhat rashly. But, um, but, but, you know, Fingolfin's people go along with him um, and not just grudgingly. So... Yeah, yeah, that's it's that's going to be so so some of that, you know, some of that, you know, those elements of Fingolfin's character and the dynamic of the relationship between sort of the comparison between Feanor and Fingolfin um, compared to the two of them. Finarfin is totally in the shadows. He's he is he is like the gentle peacemaker. Um, In fact, I think that Finarfin Finarfin's story could be kind of cool in a minor sort of way. He looks like the add-on, right? He looks like he's just the, you know, he's the third wheel in this. He's the distant, you know, uh, the the, the distant back runner of the three. There's no competition as to whether or not he is in the same league with his two brothers. And yet he's the one, exactly Marie, who winds up being the king of Tyrion, right? You can say he's the one who makes the, the best choice of the three. So we have Finarfin in his humility and his repentance returning to Tyrion. He turns out to be the real winner, right? And, and you could argue the greatest of the three, as far as the choices that he makes. Um, and I like that. I like having, you know, uh, having that moment with Finarfin, uh, which we'll have in season three, 
um, I think could be really cool. But how I would want to set that up is uh, I, w- I would want to set that up by having him totally overshadowed. Just just be um, absolutely kind of always standing one step behind either of his two brothers and almost never really involved in their discussions unless he's trying to stop them from yelling at each other later on. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, that's that 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 would be cool. Again, Fingen and Mithros, we don't need to know very much about their... I think all that we need to establish about their characters in this episode is that they're best buds. You know, they are, again, they are, they're like totally inseparable. Um, and, and they should be pretty much like in as much as it matters to elves of an age, like they're, you know, the two of them are, are a matched set from the beginning. Um, and this could be something that is sort of a connection between Fanor and Fingolfin at the beginning. In fact, I kind of like the idea if when Fingen tries to heal the breach and rescue Mithros, um, if Fingen and Mithros's friendship predates the tension between their fathers completely, there is a sense it makes more powerful then the sense in which by reuniting with Mithros, um, Fingen is sort of going back to before the troubles, right? Um, re- trying to reestablish the you know the ancient golden age of you know intra Noldoran peace, right? Um, so I would like for that to. I would like for that to be, you know, again, so even before we establish any tension between Fanor and Fingolfin, we should have the the the, the sort of the, the foundation of the relationship between their two houses be the friendship between Fingen and Mithros. Um, there was some suggestion that we have baby girls, um, you know, that we have like Aravel and, and Galadriel being like babes in arms in this episode. I kind of like that. There should be babes in arms, right? That's a that's one good way to indicate that somebody's married, right? Uh, is you know you have uh, you have uh, 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 you know husband wife and 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 swaddling swaddled baby. Um, uh, so I, I kind of I kind of like that. And yes, Marie, by having having Galadriel born already that does establish chronology to some extent, right? I mean, if we're going to be introducing like Finrod as her elder brother later on, um, that provides like a little nugget that shows. So uh, off screen somewhere, you know, Finrod is already born, right? So, you know, that's, that's, that's there. So yeah, I do. I mean, we clearly have the, um, certainly in Fingen and, and Mithras, we have the third generation involved in this episode. Um, but afterwards, I think we can I, I think we can show that the entire the entire group has been born. We don't need it. We certainly don't need to introduce them all. We don't want to do like a Finway's grandchildren roll call in this episode or anything like that. Um, but but yeah, I think certainly Fingen and Mithros in the next episode, we can show some of the others. Again, we do Kelligorm in the next one. We should do Maglor in the next one. We should do Finrod in the next. We should do Turgon in the next one. Those are the really big ones. Um, we can save the other Feanorians, maybe Kurafin gets some play. We can save the other Feanorians, certainly the twins. Um, uh, uh, Caranthir um, can be later. We can save uh, Ignor. Uh, 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 you know, we can, you know, the other, the other, the other Fenarfin uh, uh, kids. Um, those can all come later. It's fine. Um, 
But uh, yes, you're right, Marie. Uh, Go- Goadriel needs to be old enough to tell off Feanor for asking for her hair. That is the um, that is the 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 limiting factor, right? We need Goadriel to be able to be uh, um, able to refuse to give her hair to Feanor in the next episode, in episode nine. So yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's okay if she's a child. Um, she doesn't have to be, I think, fully mature at that time. Um, in fact, it might be better if she's not fully mature. Eh, I'm going to kick the can on that one. We'll talk about Goadriel next time and the, and the, and, and the hair issue. <laughs> Uh, that is a, that is a, that is a, that is a right, uh, 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 kicking of the can. Um, okay. So good. And, uh, yet, um, uh, there was the suggestion of Feanor showing more of Feanor's works. Um, yes, I'm thinking, by the way, like if the emphasis on, in the last episode was on Feanor, like in the workshop, right? Feanor in Matan and Nerdanel's, um, you know, forges and things um i think that this we don't have to we don't have to show him working this we can just show some of his works this time and i agree the palantiri are are, are the most sensible thing that we've got i think this time for um uh for for just so basically they can just be maybe maybe we just have them being used um uh and you gotta think by the way there have to be a bunch of them don't there because, I mean, if the Palantiri of Gondor and Arnor are those which were brought from Numenor, which is presumably, I mean, did they have 100% of the Palantiri in Numenor? And obviously the Palantiri that went to Numenor can't be 100% of the Palantiri that Feanor made, right? So, um, yeah, 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 Nick, there were seven. But my, my my point is, were there only seven Palantiri in Numenor? That's hard to believe. Um, but even if so, there had to have been more, right? Exactly. They were a gift from the elves of Tol Arisea, and Marie, presumably the elves of Tol Arisea didn't ship their entire uh, uh, set of Palantiri off, right? So, um, so you've got to think. So there have to be bunches of these. Um Hmm. But you know what that means, don't you? If we have Palantiri in use, that means it's incumbent upon us to think through how the Palantiri are going to be used. Which means if Fanor can use them, Oh my goodness. Oh dear. Oh I'm dear. missing something here. Sorry, I'm just I'd never thought of this. This is the first time I'm thinking through what it means to put Palantiri in it Melkor could get one. Why wouldn't he get one? Mhm. Right? I mean, why wouldn't they give him one? He could ask for one. They could give him one. Um He'd be spying on people. He could see Middle Earth. Um, would Fanor be looking at Middle Earth? 
And if so, what would he see? And what conclusions would he draw from it? And when he starts getting suspicious, would he use a Palantir to be spying on the Valar or something? And could Melkor have a Palantir and be like snooping? Swaying? Yeah. Uh, could he also weighing uh-huh. Fandor the way that Denethor gets yeah. swayed by Sauron? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, dear. Good grief what a can of worms this opens up. And I can't tell whether I like this or hate this. It's one or the other, and I'm not sure which one it is. Because um, it's kind of an awesome opportunity, theoretically, an awesome opportunity to set up you know, stuff from later on, right? I mean, we can establish some obvious parallels, but goodness. It's also a nice way to shorthand the... Um... You know the the Melkor's effects. You know what I mean? It's like showing Melkor having his uh, impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, because see, that's the thing. Okay. We have to. I think we have to do one of two things. We either have to not bring it up, or we have to make a big deal of it. Because we can't not. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows about the Palantir. The Palantir is such a big, the Palantir is such a big deal in the Lord of the Rings. And we know that Feanor made them. We can't get around that. So if they're there, if people are using them, there is a 0% chance that viewers who are looking at, like, you know, if Feanor comes in and he's like, hey, I invented this awesome thing. It's a seeing stone and you can look into it. And Melkor's sitting right there. I mean, Everyone has associations with this, right? There's no way we're going to be able to avoid the parallels to the Lord of the Rings. Um, ah, ah. Gosh. Um, and why wouldn't he bring one with him? Did he have one? Did he bring some with him when he left? Why did he leave any behind? How did the elves of Tolera say I get some? They must have been given them. So if the elves of Tolera say were given them, or did they bring them back from Middle-earth? Oh, shoot. Do the elves of Middle-earth have Palantir? Do the Noldor in Middle-earth have Palantir the whole time? Do they use Palantir to communicate in Beleriand? Ooh, oh, man. And then later on down the line, are the Valar using them to keep tabs on Middle-earth? Answering the question, yes, the Valar actually still cared about Middle Earth, <laughs> right? Or the other elves? I mean, is Finar from the watching? Elves, that's right. the, oh know, yeah, the other elves. That's right. Didn't everything hits that. the yeah. fan for his. Oh my and... God, it's like a Sunday football game, right? <laughs> yes, you know? exactly, exactly. I, oh man, um, yeah, Hakan, I can definitely see him giving some to the Teleri. Like that would be good. That would, in fact, that'd be a great thing. Um, so. The Teleri having some, and it's that would be, oh, oh, but but it's just the implications. It's just how can we do this? How can we introduce Palantiri? What excuse do we have for not introducing Palantiri into the entire First Age story? How can we explain that Feanor didn't bring any with him? So uh, forgetting the impact that it has on this episode and next. What about the next uh, 10 episodes? I mean, how could Feanor not bring them with him? He would totally bring them with him. Yeah, really, that's true. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I've got it. 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 
We do have an explanation. They were at Formanos, and most of them were lost. The only Palantiri that survive are the Palantiri that he gave away to the Teleri, and the Teleri won't give them back because it's like it's the maybe that comes up at the Kinslaying, right? And he's like, "P.S. Give me my Seeing Stones back. Uh, you know, I, I I want I want them back again." And and anyway, but anyway, but he he doesn't give them. So Feanor's personal Palantiri can get destroyed or eaten by Ungoliant. Basically, they can get taken. Oh, whew, what a relief! Oh my goodness, <laughs> I feel so much better. Oh yeah, that works. That totally works. So there are very few Palantiri left, and so when the Palantiri are given to the Numenorians, they're actually given most of their stock. Okay, all right. Whew. So the big, big, huge. How are we going to change the world in the next five seasons? Episode uh, issue, is but um, but we still do have to think about it in the next couple episodes. Do we have fan or looking in them, and to what? Because um, like he totally would, right? Um, so let's think about that. Let's think about that for the next episode. Plus, Melkor would totally get one. Melkor would totally get one. Of course, Melkor would want one. I mean, that's dead useful. Wouldn't he take at least a pair? Right? I mean, <laughs> you gotta actually, think. he could take a pair. If there was a way he could get it one to Myron, he certainly would do that. But well, we don't exactly. Have that's what I'm thinking, right? Um, actually, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be funny if, uh, you know, it turns out that it's not the Ithil stone that Sauron is using? It's like his oh old Palantir gosh. that he's had his since. Old the, like, oh oh no! This is this is one of the this is one of the original models. Yeah. Oh no! Absolutely. I, I I've had this for thousands of years. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But um, uh, but uh, but but yeah, exactly, Marie. See, we could have we could establish a Palantir link between Tulsirian uh, and uh, between Sauron and Melkor. Um, that would be okay. I don't. I don't really want the Noldor to be able to all be communicating by Palantir uh, during, you know, the siege of Angban. But, you know, Sauron could use one. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, you can. You. Yeah, Nick. No, you definitely can. It, it, it's of course you you can use the Palantiri as a com link. You know, just you know you establish the link between the two Palantiri as like a you know so you basically FaceTime with the Palantir. But you no, know, you can you use it to look around. Aragorn does that. It's Aragorn uses the Palantir uh, to that's how he sees the the corsairs of Umbar coming up from the south, and and that's that's why when he comes down from the Hornburg, he's like, okay, people, we gotta get uh, to the Stone of Eric uh, super fast, or else everybody's hosed because he saw it in the Palantir. Um, so, so yeah, no, you can, and, and Denethor does, does it too. Um, you know, he also sees many things which are, which are manipulated by Sauron, but, but he, that's how he already knows about the March of the Rohirrim and all those things. Um, yeah, Brian, that was an exact quotation. Don't you love how I can just quote exactly what Aragorn said? That's totally, that's totally <laughs> word for word what Aragorn said after the, he came down from the Hornburg. Um, I, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, no. So, but, but Nick, uh, uh, no. Remember, Gandalf says the seeing stones do not lie, right? So, when Denethor saw what Denis- Denethor saw, really is, it's just that Sauron may be able to manipulate what 
he saw and what he didn't see um, and to influence how he interpreted what he saw, but what he sees, what he sees really is. Um, so yeah, they can, they can do that. Um, okay. So think about that for next time. Um, which leads me to next time. So questions for next time. Cause we're out of time here. So, um, the big thing for next time, how do we do Melkor sowing the seeds of rebellion? Um, so remember the challenge is I want Melkor to be obviously good throughout. I don't want him to say a single clearly villainous thing at any point. Um, and yet he needs to be sowing the seeds of doubt and rebellion among the Noldor in <clears throat> episode nine. We need to do the making of the Silmarils. How do we want to handle the making of the Silmarils? We want to have that be a major set piece. Do we want to have it happen off stage, the making off stage, and Fanor just reveal them? We've got to figure out how. And how exactly do we want to depict the Silmarils? To me, that's kind of a non. The Silmarils are one of those things which sound awesome in prose description, but I'm less confident that they would look awesome on screen. So we need to think carefully about exactly how the Silmarils look um, and how we're going to handle that. But anyway, so the making of the Silmarils. How do how do we want to do the making of the Silmarils? Um, we we need to think about the 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 decline of Fanor as well. Like. Uh, Sort of how and in what ways do we have him go? I mean, presumably he's involved in some of these conversations with Melkor. We know that Melkor is targeting him, right? What is the process by which Feanor's own thinking? What is it that? What is it in how that Melkor is working on with him personally, and uh, how is it that he begins to uh, to shift and change? Um, and then. We need to be thinking about those, uh, the third generation Noldor, the grandkids. We need to think about which third generation subplots we want to introduce. I've already mentioned Keligorm, uh, Keligorm, Orome, and, and Huon as one that I definitely want to get in in the next episode. Um, but what others? Which other characters do we need to introduce and how do we need to introduce them? Um, I, I would say Maglor and Turgon would be, you know, we would need to do Maglor and Turgon. Um, how how do we want to introduce them? We need a story. We need them to do something, right? We don't want to just have them show up. How do we do that? Um, so Turgon, Turgon, Maglor, and, and Keligorm at least. Are there any others? And how do you want to do those those plots and stories? Um, and I'll add the Palantiri question we were just coming to. What role, uh, if any, do we see the Palantiri playing uh, in this uh, this decline? So. All right, so those are the questions for next time. Thanks, everybody, for all your work. You did great work on the discussion boards this week, um, uh, the, you know, these past two weeks. I look forward to our next discussion in the beginning of November. Uh, so we'll be coming back first Friday in November uh, to uh, discuss Episode 9. We're beginning to work in the, uh, the, the sort of growing crescendo towards the climax of the season here, uh, which, is, uh, uh, which is always really exciting uh, as we move forward. So we're getting there. By the time we get to the end of the calendar year, we'll be, we'll be pretty close uh, to the darkening and the, the, uh, the, the final confrontation. So looking forward to that. Um, Excellent. So yeah, um, uh, Brian is reminding me uh, to announce there's uh, there's the uh, the there's there's another meeting on Sunday uh, for the uh, the the 
the script crew. If you want to join the script outlining crew and give some, some, some concrete feedback into this, um, that would be, uh, that would be great. No, wait. Oh, it's Saturday, Saturday. Sorry. Saturday evening. Yeah. Saturday. Oh, right. Nick. Sorry. It's Sunday for Brian. It's Saturday for everybody else. Okay. Yes. Let's, 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 uh, let's not publish the date for the person who's on the other side of the date line. Yes, exactly. Right. Okay. Saturday evening, East coast time. Good. All right. Um, so be sure to check the discussion boards. You can get the link, uh, to that, to that Google hangout session and, uh, join everybody to discuss it. Which, uh, which episode are you guys up to? What are you guys going to be talking about this coming Saturday? Episode seven. Okay, good. All right. So you guys are going to be doing episode seven. So the noontide of Valinor, you guys are going to be talking about, um, yeah, the, the, the conflict free episode, Nick. Exactly. It's going to be awesome. You guys will be great. Um, uh, very good. <laughs> very good. Okay. Thanks everybody. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, we look forward to another great conversation in two weeks. Thanks everybody. Uh, thanks for listening and Godspeed.